0: This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, one and all, to the ninth episode of Through the Years, the podcast where two repressed bakers go through Ring of Honor history show by show from the beginning. I'm Trevor Dame, just really trying hard not to think about cornbread. And as always, by my side is Matt Feuerstein. Matt, how you doing?
1: I actually haven't been that repressed at all lately. This past weekend I went to two different gatherings. I made brownies for one and chocolate chip cookies for another. Just regular oh. brownies and chocolate chip cookies, so you gotta let your inner baker out.
0: That sounds so good actually. It's been so hot here I didn't have I I almost couldn't bake even if I wasn't really repressing my darkest innermost yeast based desires, but
1: So you're telling me that brownies and cookies sound good to you? You're you're expressing a very controversial opinion.
0: This is going to be literally the hottest take, like 350-degree oven hottest take. But yes, I find both of those things appealing. But one other thing I do find appealing is the Place to Be Nation Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. And so many good podcasts there, so many things to listen to. But as always, I like to point out a specific podcast and a specific episode, and this time... I am going to plug Kelly and Marty's Tag Team Back, Tag, Tag Teams, don't forget the plural, Back Again, Tag Teams Back Again, which is a podcast j- that's, um, since I thought last one, last episode, I plugged a podcast that was very current. I kind of want to go into the back catalog to a podcast that isn't putting out episodes currently, but have a, has an extensive back catalog on the website. And this is a podcast, as the title might indicate, just about tag teams, and I am going to plug Episode 16, which is Kelly and Marty's top 25 tag teams of all time, because I think that's probably a great place to start with a podcast, is to learn what the hosts like. And also, I mean, lists about wrestling on a podcast. Matt, could you imagine a podcast where every episode was a list of things? I mean, that sounds incredible. I just wish someone would have tried that.
1: At least somebody who knew what he was doing, you know?
0: Yeah, like someone who I co-host a podcast with. awesome. But uh, that'll never happen.
1: You deserve a cookie. <laughs> Ooh,
0: I'm, just, I'm a sugar suckup, not a water wally anymore. Sugar <laughs> suckup. Uh, hashtag.
1: But,
0: <laughs> you're not actually gained a tiny bit of traction last yeah, night. Yeah,
1: three people. <laughs>
0: That's three the more t- than I expected.
1: The tiniest bit of traction. You can still hashtag your water wallies and sugar suckups to us. So we're always yes. ha- we're always happy to see them. I still search water wally on Twitter every day, just in case. <laughs>
0: And, I mean, it's still water Wally season. You have probably a good month at least. And, I mean, with global warming, maybe all year. Am I right, folks? Am I right? With global warming,
1: we're going to be water Watties.
0: (laughs) All the future wars, hashtag Water Wallace. But um, you that's when it gets more serious. Oh, that's oh, when it gets more serious. That's only when the end times come, when all future wars are fought over water and minerals. Oh, okay. Then you can do Water Wallace. Gotcha. Until then, we keep it light. But now, <laughs> before we get into uh, the show, the Ring of Honor event proper, we, I do actually have a couple of notes that happened in this time about Ring of Honor, And the first, from The Observer, is the continuing saga of their local television show in Channel 48 in Philadelphia. Dave writes, Ring of Honor is strongly considering dumping its television in Philadelphia. The TV exposure was an experiment largely to push sales of videos, and it hasn't worked, nor has it brought a a new audience to the house shows. The feeling is with midnight television of five different promotions each week on Channel 48 in Philadelphia, many of which use similar talent in different storylines. For example, guys team on one show and feud on another; guys are faces on one show, heels on another, etc. That just muddles the marketplace. Now, I really only brought this up one because I find it funny through all these months. ROH constantly goes back and forth for a period of months where it seems like every month in The Observer, ROH says, well, maybe we'll keep TV. And then it says, uh, maybe we won't. It just I love that it has this kind of existential crisis through The Observer. But also, I like the idea of just – it seems crazy to think that in early 2000s, if you lived in Philly, you got to see five weekly indie wrestling promotions on – a week, like I don't know all the promotions, but I know there was Ring of Honor, NWA Wildside, I think CZW, and two more apparently.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it does seem crazy that it was on you know on TV. It is funny also that there's all this drama over a television show that it's seemingly no one really watched ever. Like I, I mean, I guess that's sort of why there was the drama. But I've never really heard anyone talk about this ROH show. I've seen a little a little bit of it just on like YouTube over the years. But this was, this was really a show that had no impact whatsoever on anything, ever.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I noticed, I was looking at one of the kind of reports from the time, and they were starting to say, you know, if you come a little early, we're taping something for the Ring of Honor TV show. I, I think I saw something like that, but they were trying a little bit more, but it still wasn't a high-effort production and wasn't a high-result production. One other interesting thing that happened in Ring of Honor in this month leading up to it, to the show, is Dave writes, Ring of Honor is also planning on expanding next year to markets like Chicago, Milwaukee, Buffalo, and Detroit, which were all strong ECW markets. I think the interesting thing here is I looked it up just to make sure they did not expand into any of those markets in 2003. I think the closest they got was they did go into New York and New Jersey, so, I mean, that's getting close to Buffalo, but Chicago wouldn't come till I think, 2004, 2004, Buffalo. No Milwaukee, no Detroit. But, but Milwaukee
1: came in o four. M- Detroit didn't come until o five. And did they? Did they mention Buffalo in that list also?
0: Yes, Buffalo yeah, was in that list.
1: That was also o five. They, they they so so. I mean, I guess they had their roadmap pretty much planned out, but it took them longer than they thought to get there.
0: Yeah, I just thought that was interesting. Where Ring of Honor does get bigger in two thousand three, they go to more cities. I think they do twenty shows compared to twelve for year one, but. I just found it interesting that they had four cities laid out that, as you just mentioned, they did get to, but they actually don't hit any of them for quite a long time, even though they already have them in mind here and are telling Dave, you know, hey, these are places we're thinking of going.
1: It seems like the biggest variance was the, all the different places in Boston that they ran.
0: Yeah, th- that will be a theme after the, our next show, which will still be in Wakefield, but the number of buildings and areas around the in Boston that they have to try and get to it seems like it's almost a new place every show at some points and one last bit before we get to show news proper is i completely i don't know if i had forgotten about this or just didn't know but frank shamrock at one point was in talks very preliminary talks dave says to work a ring of honor show as a wrestler um dave wrote In the first issue he mentioned this, he says, I wouldn't call the talk serious at this point, but he was in talks. And then a couple weeks later, Dave writes, nothing concrete on Frank Shamrock debuting as a pro wrestler with Ring of Honor. There have been more extensive talks over the past week with the idea proposed by Shamrock to do a a two-show deal starting with a referee gig with an angle to lead into a match. If it doesn't happen, it would likely be to due to the sides not agreeing to price. So, I mean, it didn't happen, so I would suggest that Frank Shamrock wanted more than Ring of Honor was willing to spend. But I think it's interesting just also in the context of Dave was, I think to this day, is still very good friends with Frank Shamrock. Uh, Ken, obviously, his brother, refereed the se- on the second show, so... Frank would probably know more about Ring of Honor than a lot of mixed martial artists at this point, I would bet.
1: Yeah, and uh, I think that we uh, lost out on very little by him not ending up (laughs) doing.
0: I mean, i bet you anything if he had come to Ring of Honor, he would have worked either American Dragon or Low-Key, and if anyone could have gotten a match out of them... Probably American Dragon at that point out of a guy that's not trained really to wrestle.
1: Yeah, I guess but, maybe it's possible that he would have liked it so much that he would have been, could become a wrestler and it would have been a, he would have been a huge star.
0: Could have been the new Brock Lesnar and then he'd never have shown up in wherever he did. I forget.
1: Yeah, now Frank Shamrock, I mean I don't want to get off of too much of a Frank Shamrock tangent, but he was – he, as far as, like, in terms of MMA legends, because I'm not a huge MMA follower, he's not that big of a deal, right? Like, he had a little, like, very brief era where he was a pretty successful fighter, but it didn't <laughs> It doesn't seem to last that
0: long. He was a top fighter, but the problem was he was a star kind of in the dark era of mixed martial arts, in the dark era of UFC, where it was kind – it was after a bunch of – I think – I feel like he really came to prominence – after the first wave of UFC had cooled off and some of the pay-per-view providers had dropped them and before Zufa and Dana White came in and started running it. So, he, he was, I, think, I feel like if a guy with Frank Shamrock's temperament and um, record came in today, he'd be a big star. But, yeah, he kind of gets lost only to more of the hardcores, I think. Although, I know Dave does mention how he drew big even in recent years in California. So... It'll yeah,
1: local legend.
0: He, yeah, uh, probably somewhat between a local legend. I mean, he's a legend to people that really follow it. Okay, so we get to the show proper. All-star extravaganza, Ring of Honor's ninth show in in its history. It took place at the Murphy Rex Center as usual in Philadelphia as usual on November 9th, two thousand and two, and it drew a record five hundred and twenty five fans for Ring of Honor. That was its biggest crowd so far. It had been drawing, I think it drew 500 for the first Wakefield, Massachusetts show, and it had done in the low to high 400s. But the reason why it did so well this time was, as Dave writes in The Observer, an attempt to market an independent doubleheader in Philadelphia on November 9th turned out to be a major success as both CZW and Ring of Honor drew fans from at least five countries and throughout the U.S., gave Sapolsky a Ring of Honor, which drew its largest crowd to date, of about 525 fans, despite what we considered a bad start time of 5 p.m., said the double-header idea would be something they'd now be interested in doing once a year. Sapolsky contributed the increased crowd to both far more out-of-towners coming in and the East Coast debut of Shinjiro Otani, who he said received an overwhelming reception with tag partner Masato Tanaka. Still... CCW drew about 850 fans, among the largest crowds in that company's history as well, for a very different show, headlined by what was billed as the retirement match for Wifebeater, who is legitimately undergoing a second major shoulder operation soon. Among the places fans came from included Canada, Australia, England, and the Netherlands, as well as Texas, California, Iowa, Illinois, and throughout the eastern states. So, I mean... That's quite a lot of people coming for a double shot where the main draw, at least by the Ring of Honor end, is Shinjiro Otani is coming to the East Coast.
1: And seemingly the biggest draw totally of the entire thing was Wife Beater. Yeah, I I, mean... It's it's actually, it's always funny when you go back to these old uh, indie shows to hear, like, the different retirements that happened.
0: Yeah, yeah. um, It's funny to think, I mean, CCW of this period is something... I completely didn't follow, so it's it's interesting to think how many people showed up because it was supposed to be the sec the the retirement of wife beater as opposed to it's a big double shot or Otani's oh, coming and you're going to be in town anyway. although again, CZW did over three hundred more fans, apparently than Ring of Honor, it's which was also, another... also
1: in prime time, which um, I'm sure made at least a little bit of difference, right?
0: yeah, and i I find that interesting too, which is it's a reminder that Ring of Honor, in the first year, it wasn't the head honcho of indie wrestling in all respects. I mean, it was taking the afternoon slot here. It was drawing the smaller crowd. It, it, you know, if that had been a few years later, I have to think it would be the opposite. You know, Ring of Honor would get the the regular evening time slot. They'd be the one drawing the bigger crowd.
1: Although but, I, did, I do know, like, even in, like, 05 when ROH wasn't doing as hot in Philly, Like you would still hear about Cage of Death, you know, doing, you know, a thousand people or, or a high, you know, high 900, 800, something like that. I don't have the exact numbers, but it did seem that way. Like in certain respects, CZW would outdraw ROH in Philly, even in other eras.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. I haven't checked the numbers, but I wouldn't doubt that being true. And I, what was my thought? Um, It's just it's also kind of almost quaint to think about the idea that maybe people came because it was a double header like in the days now where Wrestlemania weekend people congregate for Wrestlemania in a a random city that's chosen each year and a lot of people make a whole week out of it. You know the idea that in 2002 it was actually kind of a big deal that two promotions of significance decided to just run one night a double header on the same street.
1: Yeah, I, although I am retroactively like I could totally see myself being really excited about it in that 2002 mindset like oh this is cool this is like a a whole awesome day of cool stuff.
0: Yeah, and it makes sense especially with not just the people that came from outside the US but even further US states the idea of do I really want to go for one wrestling show? Well, if if there's two, you know, I can get a hotel, I can make a whole day of it, you know. It, it, I think it becomes a bit easier in some ways to justify making like a big trip and a whole weekend event rather than i went to see this one three-hour wrestling show and went home you know i I could see people i could i could so in that sense this doubleheader you know that gabe was really promoting hard before big success for i think both promotions but there was a hang-up which is a pretty predictable one as dave writes however timing was a problem for both shows the Ring of Honor show went about four hours, about an hour longer than was originally planned. <laughs> Nobody complained about the length because the last two matches in particular, a singles match with AJ Styles versus American Dragon, that got an almost consensus four and a half star marks and Otani and Tanaka versus Carino and Loki, which got a consensus four star rating, were so good. Waiting for the fans to arrive from the ROH show, CCW ended up starting its show about 90 minutes late at 9.35 p.m., and the show didn't end until 1.40 a.m. So, that that's an example of Gabe's not being able to schedule show actually hurting someone else for once. I mean, I can't imagine CZW was happy with that. And I know from reading live reviews, like I check afterwards to read a couple of live reviews, like the Death Valley Driver on the Road review, and they were talking about how you could tell some fans were getting antsy, like the show's going along, like is the CZW show going to start without, you know, that's because I think it was down the street at ECW Arena. Right, right. And so I can imagine some fans, and that even maybe affecting some of the reactions with people kind of wondering like, hey, I've got another show to be at, and this is going way late, you know. Well,
1: I mean, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but it didn't seem like it was spoiling the reactions to the later matches.
0: Uh, I might disagree on one, but we'll we'll see. Um, The last little note here, several longtime readers reported that the Ring of Honor show as the best show in company history, which seems to be something in Ring of Honor early history. Every time Ring of Honor has a good show, Dave writes that, but I think this time it might have been true, but spoilers. (laughs) Uh, The good wrestlers were all at the top of their game, and the comedy stuff was kept short, and the crowd reactions were tremendous as well. So saying all that, show proper, you put in your VHS tape or your DVD, what you see first is Steve Carino finding Low-Key backstage. Low-Key's hanging out with Homicide. And Steve tells Key that... Spanky is out. He's not going to be in the main event. The main event was originally supposed to be Spanky and Steve Carino versus Otani and Tanaka, but WWF actually, who had just signed Spanky, pulled him out of the show. They felt The excuse they gave, or that's a little leading, the reason they gave apparently, according to the Observer, was they were worried that Spanky might get himself hurt working the show. Dave points out that they let Eddie Guerrero fulfill his obligations to Ring of Honor after he re-signed with them. But Dave writes, I guess WWE had more faith that um, Eddie Guerrero wouldn't get himself hurt. I don't know if that's – I don't know if I buy that or not. I don't
1: know if I'd feel the same way <laughs> if Yeah, I were WWE.
0: Yeah, I, uh, Eddie, Eddie goes out – I mean, he did was a little bit measured, but Eddie's the kind of guy who I could definitely see him hurting himself more than Spanky. Yeah, especially Eddie- in a Eddie got hurt
1: doing his, um, doing his main move when he first debuted in the WWF.
0: Yeah, broke his arm bad. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if I buy that excuse, but that was the excuse given. But anyway, so they have this opening segment to set up the change. Key says it'll be an it would be an honor to wrestle, you know, Otani and Tanaka. Uh, but unfortunately, because Key's hanging out backstage with his boy Homicide. Homicide gets monumentally cheesed off that Karino is there. He brings up that Karino turned on him at the last show, Glory by Honor, in that tag match. Uh, Homicide starts yelling. He says that his finisher is banned in Japan. Uh, he had just worked, I think, for Big Japan not too long ago. And Karino and Homicide argue a bit, and Karino leaves. So that's our opening segment that just establishes the change of the main event. And. Next we got a techno music video as usual, spoiling some of the biggest spots of the night as usual. It's the more things change, the more they stay the same.
1: Yeah, and I I have a recollection that this continues for a pretty long time. Like they they don't they don't course correct on this one for at least another like 8 or 9 months after this. I actually at least for the, least for the big shows
0: I, I think I I looked ahead at uh, Scramble Madness, and I think they do actually learn their lesson there, but it'll be interesting to see if they go in and out of this habit. Yeah,
1: I can definitely think of one show much down the line where they do it.
0: Yeah. And next, there's something that we don't see on tape, but it actually happened live. The opening match of the show was actually Homicide versus Prince Nana, which was supposed to be Homicide versus Izzy from Special K, but Special K hurt his, I mean, Izzy hurt his elbow. So we get this from live reports. It was just a short squash that wasn't very good. This is one of those things where the show doesn't have a lot of these short skits or, or pointless squashes. So it's, pr- it's pretty lucky, actually. I think the show would have felt different in a, if it had a couple... Of these kind of matches that made the tape, so it's good that this didn't.
1: Good, good point. Oh, by the way, with that, with the um, spoiler medley, one thing that they spoiled, which I think is really ridiculous, is they spoiled Tommy Dreamer's surprise appearance. Which I mean, one of the biggest things about that was that it was a surprise. So <laughs> they really did. They really didn't know. Like I don't know. I don't know what the hell they were thinking with all that stuff.
0: And I mean, it's it's made by RF Video. You would think RF Video would know not to spoil the I mean you think they would know video production you know uh, sure like like it, it just feels like they they don't even have the the knowledge or the the drive to go one show earlier and cut up some clips i just
1: yeah like a highlight video like they could also i mean like they did, they ended up doing this years later but like just a standard highlight video opening package that they could use for every show so they didn't have to make a video for every new show.
0: Mm-hmm. And they even did that kind of with their boxes. The original Ring of Honor release boxes were all the same red box. Right, right. With the same picture on the front. I mean, if they just had a an equivalent for the video opening. They could have just done that, but you know, like they the never did. To,
1: Like the opening to every wrestling show ever. <laughs> yeah.
0: So we finally get to a actual proper match, and that is a scramble match. The Hit Squad taking on Divine Storm, taking on Special K, taking on the SAT, and the SAT, SAT win when Dixie... when The
1: SAT. The S-A-T. The SAT.
0: SAT. Oh, I'm, I'm rattled. But um, the SAT win when they pinned Dixie in 9 minutes, 14 seconds after they hit the Spanish fly. Matt, let me try and get my tongue together and tell me what you think about this match.
1: Okay, because I am definitely not going to uh, recap all the moves because it's one of those scramble matches. But I uh, the first thing I noticed was Joey Matthews as part of Special K. Um the last time we saw him he was passing out uh in the back while uh Christian York and, Ale- and Alexis Lurie were trying to wake him up and Special K was laughing now all of a sudden he's in Special K and it felt like this wasn't the plan to just suddenly have him in Special K that, like there was supposed to be something in between but uh I guess maybe not maybe they were just like oh that's enough that explains it it doesn't it doesn't explain it at all <laughs> but but he's with Special K now and uh the crowd is really into him as a heel. I, I don't, like, I think it it might have been slightly go-away heat, although I can't imagine why because he didn't do anything too offensive or too exciting prior to this. Um, but it also seemed like maybe it was like a lot of tongue-in-cheek, like it was fun to boo Joey Matthews. And he really got into it. He really got into the heel stuff. He did a good job. He actually looked really good in this match. Um, but, um, I, uh, I did think it was funny that the previous segment was the whole um, – was the entire explanation for the angle. At one point, uh, Chris Lovey slash Gabe Sapolsky does mention, you know, what is, what is just Joey Matthews doing hanging out with these young kids? He's older than that. Everyone knows that, these 18-year-old kids. And you pointed out to me recently, uh, Joey Matthews is like five years older than that. He was 23 in 2002. Yeah. <laughs> so not – I mean I guess it's a different perspective when you're an old man like us, but – 23 doesn't seem that old to be to be living a partying lifestyle, but...
0: Uh, yeah, at one point, Gabe says, like, I'll just say Special K, I thought the gimmick idea that Gabe sometimes tried to present them as was a good idea, which was they weren't just raver kids. They were rich kind of privileged, spoiled brat, raver kids that were thrill junkies that really didn't care about wrestling. And that's not a horrible idea, but Gabe describes... I just thought I'd slip this in. Gabe describes Special K during this as, he goes, quote, Special K are not the people you want to hang around with unless you're 18 years old and you're living off your parents and you're going to raves all night and doing whatever people do at raves. I mean, that sounds what 18-year-olds would want to do. I mean, that doesn't sound, I think a lot of 18 year olds would go. Yeah. I like to go out with parties and still live at home at age 18.
1: Yeah, it's true. Although, um, I don't know, probably just, he assessed that a lot of the, uh, indie wrestling fans were much more like angry shut-ins who never got out and had fun except at <laughs> wrestling shows. I don't know. Maybe I'm just projecting here. Um, <laughs> speaking, of, speaking only of myself. Um, but, uh, but yes, yeah, and by the way, that that whole spiel that Gabe does about Special K, it's a perfectly fine spiel to characterize the characters. It was fine on this show, but he literally gives that same little speech during every Special K match for on every show for the next two and a half years of ROH, and at the, and at a certain point, the whole you know he's too on the nose thing, that's one of the examples of him being way too on the nose, um, but. But like I said, the, the crowd really gets into Joey as a heel. Um, Monster Mac tries uh, tries like a wrestling and reversals thing with Chris Devine at one point, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, let's see. They, they do um, – first of all, I thought the Hit Squad were so much better in this match than they are in their shitty squash matches that they had the whole time. Like they actually were a fairly good – I guess the word is base – for these guys to jump off of. And like they were kind of a good counterbalance. To like hitting some of the. Uh, some of the power moves and stuff. The whole crazy. Uh, Tower of doom spot. That you saw last month. I thought uh, I thought it hit a lot better here. I don't know uh, how to explain it. It just, it just fit well in the match. But I thought everyone looked pretty on. Um, I thought you know. Um, the uh, mafia did a half nelson suplex uh on joey the maximos they did this cool like um taking turns doing german suplexes on quiet storm and then hit double dives right after that i thought the crowd really liked that spot um then joey kicked joe low joe low joello i should say and dixie uh hit this like forearm off the top and then there was this sort of like awkward non-breakup thing Uh, mafia tried to pin Dixie and like someone went for a breakup and it didn't I don't know it was just really weird and he had to kick out Um, but uh, another cool spot they did a double buckle bomb on uh, on Quiet Storm where um, um, which uh, oh and so he did the the buckle bomb onto onto Quiet Storm which crotch Dixie who was on the rope and that allowed SAT to hit the Spanish Fly on Dixie for the win, and the crowd loved it. They loved. They they chanted for the SAT. This didn't really get weird or boring. It just it just felt like they were like you felt like they were learning how to do this match, and this is the match where they learned how to do it. Uh, definitely the best the SAT has looked ever in my opinion so far. The best the Hit Squad has looked. The best Joey Matthews has looked um i thought this was a success of a match you know it's, th- these matches are never going to be like amazing matches but for a fun silly spot fest i thought they did a really good job and the crowd really liked it like you could tell this was a really hot crowd maybe it's because it was earlier in the day i don't know but they were really into it one thing i did notice though the whole thing oh um special k is one of those groups that doesn't shake hands and joey Matthews shakes hands so oops
0: <laughs> and I I I might have forgotten to mention, but yes, Ashley Special K tonight is Dixie and Joey Matthews. So he's just a partner, I guess. Maybe that's um, is he getting hurt with the elbow injury? Although that would have meant he would have been scheduled to pull double duty with he was originally scheduled to wrestle Homicide. I don't yeah, know.
1: Before I knew the, the the Homicide thing, I um I that was my assumption that they just rushed the Joey Matthews thing because because of Izzy being hurt. But I, I guess if he was wrestling Homicide, then maybe not.
0: I'm not sure because, I mean, we will see a bunch of guys in Ring of Honor pull double duty fairly regularly. But I thought this was good as well. Um, I, I feel like this scramble compared to all the other ones was more suplex-based. I feel like it just the the mix of talent they had – they built to the big high-flying spots at the end, I think, smartly. But there was a lot more – the big spots were far more guys being thrown around than – and maybe because of that, I feel like this was probably the less, the least botchy um, scramble Ring of Honor's had up to this point. There might have been one rough sequence with uh, Christovain somebody, but otherwise there was no – everything went looked according to plan, except Dixie at the end of the match apparently broke his leg – taking the Spanish fly. Um, I forget what bone, but he uh, broke some bone in his leg, they said. Oh, wow. And you can clearly see when he has to come back later, he's limping. And even if you watch at the end of the match, you can see, like, people huddling over him. So it's weird because you don't think of the Spanish fly as a dangerous move, but I didn't notice him limping before that, so I'm going to assume he... Hurt himself bad on the Spanish fly somehow. Maybe one leg hit before the other or got caught or something. Any move
1: where you're uh, flipping off of the top rope is has some degree of danger in it.
0: That's uh, easy. I could take it. Just like how you could tell a story in seven minutes. Uh, I could take a Spanish fly any day. My eyes closed. Uh-huh. But <laughs> um, I thought this was probably the best the SAT looked in a while. Not that that's high praise, but they've
1: looked period. I think.
0: Yeah. I feel like they were trying hard. Um, the SAT are going to get a tag title shot at final battle. So we're kind of, we're going to get a bit of a push for them. And it felt like this match, some of the points near the end were designed to really make the SAT look strong. They had a big, uh, I think moonsault flying drop, flying leg drop combo, which I thought was a big move that looked cool. Um,
1: I also think that just having guys like Joey Matthews, you know, guys who just aren't the kind of flippy guys in the match, add something to it. A little bit of maybe like a – like a little bit of a glue of of some sort.
0: Yeah, and I also – again, I just think it's easier to take a suplexes than it is to do dives, you know. not Maybe not physically in terms of the impact, although it probably depends on the suplex and the dive, but just – if you're doing a bunch of twists and jumping off you know turnbuckles or top ropes when you're sweaty and don't know how tight the ropes are, that seems to be a lot da- more dangerous than a guy just grabbing you and you jumping backwards with him. There, there's less margin for error in terms of maybe not danger for physical damage, but for having a big obvious screw up. Yeah, And I think that made the match run smoother. As you noted, Joey Matthews gets real surprisingly loud heat here. I don't I don't know, like, that was on the last show, too, before he had kind of completed his turn. I don't know why the crowd hates Joey Matthews so much. It's, because he's getting, I don't know how much of it is legit, like, or how much of of it is go-away heat, like you said. But he gets some pretty, like, they specifically chant after Joey Matthews. It's not Special K in general. I don't know what it is, but he gets a big kind of heel reaction, and to go from christian in york where he was nothing to all of a sudden being kind of an overheal for ring of honor in the matter of a few shows with little explanation a few I, maybe literally,
1: literally one show yeah he was just he was with he was with york uh last month then there was a backstage angle where he was passing out and now he's in special k
0: it's just yeah i i don't know and um One other thing I guess I'll mention is I looked up on Wikipedia the other – a week or so ago, Joey Matthews, and he did have a drug problem since he was very young, like the kind of drug problem where you total 10 cars and are in and out of rehab. So I don't know if this was known about Joey Matthews. In looking back in hindsight, knowing all the drug problems he would have, like even after this, him playing a drugged-out party boy character that gets dosed on the last show – that's I don't that's kind of a, one of those weird squeezy you just skeevy you just have to ignore it because it's wrestling kind of things, but uh one other no- the other uh, only other note I have for this is Gabe says the hit squad just got back from their first Japan tour with big Japan and he says they got mobbed by fans there. I believe the first half, I don't know if they I, I have a hard time believing the hit squad got mobbed <laughs> by fans doing their i wonder if they did like yay hey, we're from new york but we know you fans in japan love the hottest hitting big japan action you right. got hanma you got yeah
1: like, they 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 were they were they actually mobbed the fans That's that's at least in the other clips that we saw <laughs> that's what that's what they were doing like that's what they probably what he meant to say he was probably like uh, the hit squad they mobbed some fans on a bus Um, they didn't understand what they were saying, but they were mobbing them and, uh, (laughs) they really, they really got them hyped up for the hardest hitting.
0: They they had a very big reaction when they left the bus and they realized they were safe.
1: I feel like ROH really turned the corner when they stopped having the hit squad, uh, stand around awkwardly on buses at the beginning of their
0: DVDs. (laughs) Well, even here, they're more refreshing. They're not this overbearing presence where every hit squad segment is either them yelling about how great Ring of Honor and they are, or coming in and beating the living shit out of somebody. Like here, they're just integrated into a match where they're no bigger part or smaller part than anybody else. And as you said, they come off a lot better, I think.
1: A lot better. In
0: in this context.
1: Like, they're a tag team who you might want to watch do some stuff. As opposed to just, like, the most obnoxious, overpushed assholes uh, in Ring of Honor.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I was never against, you know, the Hit Squad are not a bad tag team. It's just the way they were presented. Right. So, yeah, better than average, maybe the best. A scramble i kind of did miss some of the crazy flying i kind of actually like the crazy botches i think maybe i've gotten kind of perverted by watching all of this but it was weird just to see one that's actually hung together well but so I, I,
1: if you're an indie wrestler just know that if uh, trevor dame's ever in the audience do some botches
0: the first indie show i ever went to a guy did a huge flying move and Crashed near me and bled all over my shoes. So
1: is that the like kind of cr- is that the kind of botch you like? Uh,
0: I like I like all sorts of botches, but yes, I love when people bleed on me.
1: Okay, well, <laughs> put it on Craigslist.
0: Okay, quick, cuts. let's uh, let's <laughs> change segments to the number one contenders' trophy gauntlet match. That's a big mouthful, and this is the. I guess maybe before I say the match, this is the. To crown the first number one contenders trophy holder and that was a ring of honor idea to it lasted for a fair bit of time where they wanted an official recognized number one contender all the time so the idea would be whoever wins the number one contenders trophy would defend it until they got scheduled for their title shot at which point the Ted, the trophy would become vacant and that per- they would have to hold new matches to crown a new number 1 trophy contender at one point at one thingy. point sorry no go on i was just rambling
1: oh no, but like at one point gabe was like uh, we know that um we know that uh secondary titles are bullshit in other promotions and they mean nothing um <laughs> uh, so we don't like them but we have this one <laughs> and this one's better <laughs> because it means that you get a title shot And it's a trophy instead of a title belt.
0: (laughs) I did like the logic he used on this show and I think one or two shows before when he first announced it, which was – that Xavier got a title shot against Loki just by asking him, and Loki said yes, and they said after that Ring of Honor decided they didn't want it to be that arbitrary again. <laughs> so I, I do like that, that, that idea that, well, maybe that shouldn't have happened where a guy was just like, hey, can I have a title shot? Yeah, and that didn't turn out well, so maybe we should have a, a trophy. But I think the only thing is some of the – it puts Ring of Honor in the position of they always have to now do these – these made-up matches to crown a new champion, uh, number one contenders champion. And some of these matches can feel arbitrary. Like, for example, match one in this gauntlet is Michael Shane taking on CM Punk, and he beats CM Punk via pinfall in 13 minutes, six seconds, with a roll-up while he holds onto the ropes. This is CM Punk's debut, and Gabe seems to be aware of how weird it is that he's in a gauntlet match for the number 1 contenders and he's never wrestled in the company before so Gabe mentions you know Ring of Honor acknowledges what other people what people have done outside of Ring of Honor so you know CM Punk's one of the hottest young prospects in indie wrestling so he's getting a shot here but then like moments later he says something about how what only matters in Ring of Honor is what you do in Ring of Honor so Gabe kind of all over the place here you know CM Punk walks right into a number one contenders match. And the match itself was not the best way to debut CM Punk or anyone, I think. Michael Shane has really gone downhill. Uh, he, he's he gone from someone who I thought was better than my memories to worse, or probably right where my memories were. I don't know if it's just him turning heel or what, but ever since the uns- after the unscripted show... The last couple shows he's just been very plodding. Very Gabe tries to call it on commentary like, "Oh, he's an old school wrestler. He's very methodical." But his methodical wrestling here is just putting guys in lots of chin locks, lots of you know headlocks, mugging for the crowd occasionally, being very slow. And it, it, I like methodical matches. I like slow, measured matches. This isn't. He doesn't have the kind of nuance or detail work or presence to drive a match like that. At the same time, I wouldn't say this match was bad. I'd say it was average. Um, CM Punk doesn't... It's weird seeing CM Punk at this age, too, because he's doing bigger kind of flippy moves that CM Punk in later years wouldn't do. He's doing a moonsault. He does the Undertaker rope walk, but he ends it with a leg drop onto uh, Shane's arm. And really, most of the match is him working on Michael Shane's arm. It's, it's, it's um, Shane working over Punk, Punk gaining a comeback, working over Shane's arm a bit, then Shane taking over again. And you really don't get a great showcase of CM Punk. This feels like a, a match Michael Shane could have had with 30 other guys, that he would have worked the same way and kind of led the match. But... It wasn't terrible. Punk got just enough to at least make you think, "Hey, I'd like to see this guy again." But for 13 minutes in CM Punk's debut far from a highlight of his in Ring of Honor.
1: Yeah, they uh, the crowd really did like Punk though, like before he did anything. Like they were really into the idea of CM Punk being there. He definitely came in with the uh with the reputation from uh, you know, IWA and other places. So that was good. And I feel like the crowd was into it at first, but it was very slow for a long time. Chin locks, front face locks, you know, basic arm moves. I thought it was a pretty unique in ROH because, like, a match with so many basic holds. Um, and by a certain point, there were you could hear a little boring chants here and there. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah, there
0: were boring chants, and there was a "We Want London" chant, I think, at one point. Even that's um, pretty
1: rare for ROH for the people to, to to have boring chants. And in general, this crowd I thought was pretty hot on this night. So, I I, I was surprised by that, but. You know, by the end, it was okay. There were a couple good spots. Um, Shane hit this, like, really wicked, like, bicycle kick to Punk's face at a certain point in the match. Like, I I remember that being pretty uh, intense. Um, Punk got uh, a, you know, uh, did the split-legged moonsault, which is, I don't know, it's interesting coming from him at this point. Um, And Shane got his legs up. Uh, And then, it's interesting, because it seemed like Punk got tired at a certain point, which is surprising, for a guy that, you know, a few months later wrestled a 90-minute match and didn't seem to get <laughs> tired. But, like, he botched, a, um, like, a kind of a um, a flip out of the corner. You know, like, where, um, like, he's in the corner and Mike and Shane, like, pulled his legs out of it. Like, he was going to, like, flap, jack him onto his back. yeah. But Punk does a thing where he flips backwards and land on his feet. And Punk botched that, um, which I don't see too often. And I was surprised to see that. Um, but I thought they gave, they gave Punk a lot. You know, it wasn't like Shane was the established star, and he beat Punk, you know. uh, Like I said, it was 13 minutes, um, Punk moved out of the way from the elbow, he hit the Shining Wizard, uh, and then he lost with a really cheap cheap roll-up with holding the ropes, which never is, to me, that's never a satisfying way to end a match, like, especially... You know, if there's like decent near falls before it, it always seems like disappointing when a match ends with like a really quick roll up for someone holding the ropes. I guess part of it is holding the ropes doesn't seem like it would make that much of a difference a lot of the time. You know what I mean? Like there's like a wrestling logic where if you put your hand on the ropes, suddenly you have so much more leverage to pin a guy. But usually the angles that they come at, they don't it doesn't really seem like that would actually make that much of a difference. You know what I mean? Does that yeah. make sense?
0: Like, how much leverage are you getting grabbing a rope
1: Yeah, when you're you're just
0: sitting on a guy, basically?
1: Yeah, I mean, like, there are certain times, like, if you're, like, sitting on top of a guy's shoulders and you lean big on the ropes, I could see that. But just, like, grabbing the rope, I don't know. But also, I guess one of probably the least logical things about pro wrestling to me is, like, the way guys pin each other, I feel like, wouldn't it make more sense if they really wanted to pin the guy to, like, just, like lean your body across their shoulders? Like, do the earthquake sit most of the time? Wouldn't that be the most effective way?
0: I mean, there'd be a lot more effective ways than hooking one leg. And
1: the la- just the lateral press in general doesn't seem like it would be that effective.
0: Yeah. It, Unless
1: you're, s- like, so much stronger than the guy that you're pinning.
0: I wonder how it started with the lateral press. Like, wouldn't you always want to do almost... The uh, the koada powerbomb where you fold the guy in half right on his shoulders, so yeah. all of his lower body weights on top of him, as well as all of your weight, yeah. rather than just I'm kind of lying on you like I'm the lattice topping of a pie, where I'm just lightly draped over your midsection, holding one leg.
1: Yeah, I mean when you're watch when you watch amateur wrestling, I don't know how much you've seen, but they don't do lateral presses, right? Like that's not the way that guys pin each other down.
0: I, I I highly doubt it. I haven't seen much, but I highly doubt that's what they do.
1: Yeah. All right, anyway, sorry for the aside. but
0: <laughs> That's the best part of the show, probably. It was
1: a lame finish, is what I'm trying to say.
0: <laughs> but I also thought it was interesting that I feel like nowadays when you have hot indie talent that's never worked the promotion before, their first match would be all out, and you kind of don't see things like this anymore where it's much more reserved and You know, as you said, he gets a few big moves to shine with and he gets a a good level of offense, but he's not doing everything he can do. It's not this breakneck, you know, I've got to impress everyone to get future bookings. I'm going to do everything I know to do. I can't let the crowd. I mean, part of that might be Shane is controlling the match and doing it slow. But it's just I I feel like this match, I never see this kind of performance from a debuting guy in an indie in 2017, ever
1: well, even at this point, punk, you know, punk's calling card was his promos. You know, like, like he was the best, one of the best promos on the indies, more so than his wrestling. Like he was a good wrestler, but he was a great personality. And I think, like, it must have been pretty clear to Gabe. You know, when he starts booking, like, okay, we're clearly going to introduce this character slowly. Because they certainly, besides Punk not showing what he can do in the ring, he also doesn't show a third of his personality in either that promo from Unscripted or in this match.
0: He's basically a generic, fiery babyface.
1: Right, and I think it's very similar to the Xavier thing, where they're clearly, like, doing this misdirection thing before they introduce the real CM Punk a few months later. And, you know, in some ways, that's probably pretty effective.
0: Yeah, I mean... They do not, even though this match on its own was just an average match, they obviously continue to have plans for Punk and keep booking him and have little storylines for him to come into with Colt Cabana next. So right. this is just the start. And we go right into match two of the Gauntlet series, and that's Michael Shane taking on Paul London once again. And Paul London defeats Michael Shane via pinfall in four minutes, 38 seconds after he hits uh, a DDT, but it's kind of the. Uh, he hooked one leg with his leg. I don't know what you would call that, like a leg trap DDT. I'm not sure. Yeah, kind of. But uh, Matt, what did this? I don't know how many thoughts you can have on a four and a half minute match, but we're about to find out.
1: Well, I like that they they went out right to the floor and started, you know, whipping each other into into the guardrails and stuff. I like that because. Um, you know, we've seen them fight so many times, so obviously they're just like, okay, I just fucking hate you, and I want to beat you up, so they didn't do the whole rigmarole of having the, you know, the feeling each other out in the ring, and of course, it's obligatory that someone had to take out the guardrail in the first 30 minutes of this DVD, so that happened, um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I thought, um, it was probably the best, they could have done with these two at this point was have them do a four minute really fast paced match where where london wins and also he hits like the 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 quick ddt um after he does a whole playing possum thing which is what shane did at unscripted where he uh he pretended to be hurt and then he rolled him up quickly and that's sort of what london did uh he drops london face first uh on on his knees and then london sells his ribs for a long time and then, um, you know, they, they act like, oh, London's ribs are hurt, London's ribs are hurt. And that's when he hits the DDT and does the pin. I thought it was, I thought it was cool, like a good little poetic justice spot. You know, Shane had his 13-minute match. I think we got enough of Shane in the ring. And we moved on to the Paul London segment, which was going to be like the excitement segment. So I thought, I thought this was done as well as it could be done uh, in the, all things considered. Considering how many matches they've had prior to this and, you know, what else was still to come. In the gauntlet, I think like I probably would have booked it the exact same way.
0: Um, I think as a match, yeah, it was fine. I think the booking makes sense that, you know, um, London took the fall in the triple threat in the elimination three way on the last show. So he gets the he was beat, took the sliced bread number two from Spanky and then Shane came in and stole the pin. Well, here London gets his pin back. So I like that. I like that that's keeping the feud going. And I like the playing possum finish that you mentioned, and Gabe did a good job of actually making sure everyone recognized that. He described it just as you did. Except Paul London was still selling his ribs after the pinfall. So I feel like if you're doing playing possum, you should, you know, once you've hit the move, don't sell it anymore just to really – emphasize i mean you could be playing half possum but i feel wrestling's not good at that kind of subtlety i think it'd be better just to almost go the other way and you know do the big point to your head to let everyone know you're smart and well,
1: i because feel like Lo- london clearly was an ambitious wrestling actor and wanted to have the half possum subtlety added <laughs> to the wrestling uh, lexicon
0: But that finish is the kind of finish on paper I love, which is it's a callback. It's, you know, the face getting revenge in a smart way. You know, he's giving Shane a taste of his own medicine. Um, The only other thing I would say in this match that was perfectly fine for being short was Michael Shane does the worst Boston Crab I have ever seen in wrestling to Paul London in this match. For people who have not seen it, lie down and lie on the back of your head and your shoulders and hold your entire rest of your body rigidly straight in the air above your head. Now, have someone else come up to you and lightly hold that risen body of yours against them and just hold it there for 15, 10 seconds, somewhere around that. And that is this Boston crap.
1: Man, I feel like a new motif on this show is you really don't like Michael Shane.
0: Um, I thought, again, I thought he was... That Michael Shane spanky brawl, I liked better. I liked all his early performances. I thought, hey, you know, Michael Shane's better than I thought. But it's like as soon as the unscripted match ended and he started to really lean into being a heel, I thought his performance in the triple threat on the last show wasn't good. But spanky and London also weren't great. But I also think here he's... Even even Gabe on that CM Punk match where he's saying, "Oh, it's he's a reserved, he's an old school, you know, it's it's a meticulous, old fashioned approach to wrestling." Um, I feel like Gabe was trying to justify something even he probably didn't like because Michael Shane isn't around that much longer, and he went from well, being he's a guy not, that definitely
1: not pushed that much longer. That's for sure. Yeah,
0: yeah, and he goes from being a guy that you even the observer was saying, you know, ROH told Dave that they were gonna get behind Shane, give him a big push. And this is kind of his peak right here. I would say maybe the last show.
1: Unscripted was probably the peak, yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, unscripted, and then he beats London and Shane in a three-way at Glory by Honor. And I think we're starting to go on the downslide. This was just a couple months after they wrote, you know, Dave got word that they were playing a big push for them. So I have to think performances like this are one of the reasons, maybe. Or maybe he just had other obligations, but... They do not, he does not get a big push like you maybe had heard. And afterwards we, then we don't get a match next. We get, um, Michael Shane goes to leave. He, uh, gets on the mic when Paul London wants to shake his hand and he refuses the handshake saying that Paul London's win was cheap. So he's being a hypocrite, gets lots of booze. He goes to leave. He's actually getting a really loud heel reaction And then who comes out but Tommy Dreamer. And uh, Tommy Dreamer gets him to walk back into the ring. Dreamer gets on the mic in the ring and proceeds to cut, I would say, like, a 10-minute promo. And it's a a classic Tommy Dreamer ECW referencing promo. If you've heard Tommy Dreamer do a promo at your local indie, you've heard this promo. I thought it was good. He... uh, puts over ring of honor he compares it to ecw he talks about ecw uh he talks about getting the tapes sent to him by gabe and um rob and then he wants shane to do oh and and dreamer also has a cute little thing where he talks about um he's going to be working down the street or not down the street but Somewhere else in the city that night, because there was a WWF house show or WWE house show that night, and uh the crowd boos. And then he Dreamer just goes, "Well, at least I get paid this time." Yep. <laughs> and the crowd really popped for that one. Yeah, it complete. It was very clever little move that completely turned the crowd back on his side with one line. Mm-hmm. And um so yeah, he uh he gets Shane to shake London's hand finally. Shane shakes it, but then clotheslines London, which pisses Dreamer off. He hits Shane with a DDT, tells the guy in the back to play his music, and he walks out slapping hands to Man in the Box. Um, this It's weird. I just said Dreamer's done this promo a lot. But I liked it here for some reason. I, I thought it gave a nice little endorsement to Paul London and Ring of Honor. I actually did not dislike this.
1: No, I thought it was really good. I, I thought it, it added to the DVD, and I thought it was perfect for 2002 Philadelphia. ROH needed that ECW credibility at this point because that, that was the gap that they were filling, and I think that this helped uh, kind of bring that along.
0: And I can't, get, I can't describe enough how over Tommy Dreamer was to this crowd. They were hanging on his every word, reacting to every platitude. Like, they were really loud and really excited to see Tommy Dreamer here. Apparently, um, according to The Observer, the appearance of Tommy Dreamer had nothing to do with Spanky not appearing. So, in other words, it wasn't a make good. Ring of Honor had contacted Jim Ross and asked him about using Dreamer or William Regal after Dreamer had suggested doing something at the Ring of Honor show. John Lauer and I approved as long as Dreamer didn't take any bumps. So, you know, WWE giveth and taketh away. If, um, they wouldn't let them use Spanky, but they would, even though Tommy Dreamer was working a house show that night, said, yeah, he can go here, he can cut a speech, he can DDT a guy. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. But we go on to match three of The Gauntlet. And now it's Amazing Red taking on Paul London. And Paul London defeats Amazing Red via pinfall in five minutes, 50 seconds after he hits a shooting star press. Um, another short gauntlet match. Uh, they they tried to do a lot of cool athletic spots. I thought it was I thought it was almost like a good WCWC show match where two really talented flyers would get five minutes. You know, and it wouldn't be something you would ever remember, but you would enjoy the spots they were doing. At the same time, Gabe almost ruined this match for me because the first three minutes of this match, Gabe is doing nothing but almost yelling, orgasmically talking about the Tommy Dreamer segment. <laughs> j- j- just, he will not, sh- he literally does not talk about this match, which is a, part of a number one contenders match, and he won't talk about it for, I would say, the first half of this match. He's just going, oh, such a big deal! Like Tommy endorsed us, and blah 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 blah, and he just won't shut up about it.
1: But on, on the bright side, this is one of those gay moments which is clearly not contrived. Like he's clearly like just actually super excited about it and wants to share it with everybody
0: on the DVD. <laughs> I went back to the archive, you know, the way back machine, and looked at the Ring of Honor website. At the time, Gabe was so excited about the speech, he posted a transcription of it on the Ring of Honor website. Like, Gabe was super pumped that Tommy did this speech.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess at a certain point you get kind of uh, um, I guess immune to the excitement because all well, this happened a lot of times. But this is one of the first times that one of like the old guard stars came in and was just like, I've been watching you guys and you're making me proud. And I, it probably did mean a lot to him, so it was annoying, but I, I can't hold it too much against him.
0: And again, in the uh, in the in everything I've read, it sounds like Dreamer reached out to them. I mean, I know Dreamer, I think to this day, is friends with Rob Feinstein, but the way they made it sound like it was like he was the one that offered to go, hey, you know, if you ask WWE, maybe I can come do something because I'm going to be in the same town this night. So Tommy was probably eager to give this endorsement and what What did you think about the match? because I don't know again, another match where it's under six minutes. I don't know how much there is to say there,
1: I mean, I thought it was you know again, none of these matches can be great when they're short like this, but I thought this was entertaining. They pulled off a lot of the cool moves, kind of the early stuff where they were like trading, like blocking arm drags and stuff. That was a little bit sloppy. They were trying to do a lot of stuff, but they did some cool reversals, like Red doing the baseball slide and London catching him and swinging him into the guardrail. I really was impressed with uh, Red pulling off the standing top rope rana, where they were both standing on the top rope, and Red jumps up and does the rana off the top. I thought that was really cool. Um, but I, I, you know, I think I think at a certain point it got good. I would say it got good and was getting good, and then it stopped. That's what I would say. (laughs) Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess in a way it's not giving away because it's part of a gauntlet, so people – but we were talking the other day about a future Paul London American Dragon match, and because they have a match here in the gauntlet, you called that future one uh, Dragon London 1.5, and that's kind of – what these some of these matches feel like were 0.5 think, of a
1: match yeah half of yeah, a match yeah
0: you, you think hey it's london and red for the first time they're just giving it away but really they're giving you the point 0.5 version it's yeah. it's not their first real match in ring of honor so yeah.
1: and i would say in this case it's more of a 0.25 if the london match was the point five, i mean if the dragon match was point
0: 0.5 yeah th- this is even more insubst- uh, insubstantial because the match we get next match 4 in the gauntlet american dragon takes on paul london and American Dragon beats Paul London via submission in nine minutes seventeen seconds with the cattle mutilation, and this was a good match. This was not the great match they would have later on, but it was good. And I would say I, th- I, w-
1: I would say it was very good. Like, the, the, uh, but anyway, sorry. I, I don't I'll, I'll, I'll wait till it's my turn.
0: No, actually, maybe it should be your turn because I think I might have mixed it up. You should. Uh, Actually, you should talk about this one, because I should look at the notes.
1: It was short, I mean, like, for these guys, because, you know, they have much longer matches later, but this was like a 10-minute match, as opposed to a 5-minute match. So it was long enough to be a match, but I thought it was... I thought just the main thing that made the match so good, to me, was just how good American Dragon looked. He had missed the previous month's show. He was in New Japan. They they, they mentioned that he had just come back from a tour in New Japan. And he looks so freaking great here. His offense—I mean, physically he looks good too. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> his wrestling looks so good. His his um his uh European uppercuts, which is like this is this is when he really starts to perfect that, and obviously that's one of his signature moves for the rest of his career. Um, look great. All of the stretching that he does on London in the beginning looks super impressive. Um. You know he wraps London's arm in the ropes and then goes to work on with slaps and chops and a drop kick. He's just a beast. Uh, they trade forearms and the, in the middle of the ring, Dragon gets the better of it. Um, and London, when London goes for a moonsault off the middle middle ropes, Dragon catches him with a drop kick and just starts stretching him again. Like he's just he just looks so like just such like a badass and his offense is so great. I mean his offense. Looks so much better than anyone else I could think of, even at that time in the U.S. He's such a great wrestler. So young! This is still less than a year after the first ROH show, and he already looks like four times better, in my opinion, than he did at the beginning. And he was having like some of my all-time favorite matches even then. But just his personal, like the way he carries himself, the way he controls his body, and like the the way he controls the the match and the moves and. What he does to other guys, just—it's so impressive. He looks like a level above everyone else. Um, uh, but yeah. So London hits the the backdrop, standing moonsault for two. Dragon comes back with a big clothesline. London flips off the top rope, uh, and uh, and with the oh, he flips out of the top rope back suplex that uh that Dragon does, and hits a Russian leg sweep off the top rope, and goes for the shooting star press, and. But Dragon hits the superplex, Dragon suplex, cattle mutilation, tap out. Like I said, it wasn't a great match with the drama, but the execution of everything was so good that I can't see this being anything less than a very good 10-minute match.
0: I-, I thought American Dragon looked amazing here, like you said. Um, he gets huge reactions here, For like you said, for the European uppercuts. I mean – guys were doing crazy spots in for example the scramble match he gets a reaction as big as any move in that match gets for how good these european uppercuts get people applauding and hooting and i mean unbelievable and i think i might have mentioned this on an earlier show but one of the things that separates dragon from so most almost everyone else on these shows is every move he's putting his all into where a lot of other guys you, can, you see them do a move and you almost can see them in their head thinking, you know, they're thinking about the big moves they're going to do later in the match. They're only half committing to what they're doing because they're thinking, you know, the most important moves are down the road. I never feel like Dragon is anything less but absolutely 100% in the moment on every move. He is trying to execute every move so it looks as perfect as possible with his full intensity, his full commitment to it. It just completely separates him. And he already, like you said, he looks freaking incredible. I would say he I, I always knew Dragon was good even from an early, early age, because I had watched these shows. But looking back, I think you appreciate it even more now because I feel like was probably 80, 85% of the way to his peak at this age. He's just missing maybe a little bit more of working to the crowd and, and a little bit more experience. But like He's already fantastic at this age, at this level of experience. Um,
1: Isn't it amazing that WWE had him at the time and let him go? It's it
0: it shows you how much. Yes, sorry. No, it shows you how much they uh, changed. And actually, I was just listening to Dave Meltzer's podcast with Chris Jericho about the life of Chris Benoit, and he was pointing out how Daniel Bryan. You know, if he had come up in the mid-90s, he would have been a WCW cruiserweight, and if he had come up, you know, a generation earlier, he might not have ever made it to WCW or WWF. Like, just how yeah. insane that is, you know?
1: It is crazy. I mean, someone that good, you know, I'm trying to think if, if, if there was anyone from previous eras as an analogous to, to Brian Danielson, like in terms of height and skill. Because Dynamite Kid was a decent bit taller, right?
0: And obviously, Dynamite Kid was willing to pump himself up like in an over grilled hot dog with steroids, which is something uh, young Brian Danielson wouldn't be willing to do, or old Brian Danielson for that matter. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Like I, I feel like that's what w- the root was. If you were that short and that talented you just got really stocky and you did a bunch of steroids and you got thick and obviously that's never been American Dragon Brian Danielson's MO. I mean it's so. it's
1: so lucky for some of these guys like like the fact that you know cuz I know obviously that the reason that ROH was able to have such a good roster at this point was because ECW and WCW folded so there was a dearth of places to go for some of these guys but i also feel like a little bit of it was total serendipity that these guys all happened to be coming up right as WCW and ECW folded because i feel like in other eras even there there wouldn't be this large group of amazing like artist type wrestlers who you know were into the the you know sort of like the athleticism of it you know weren't you know because weren't just focused on um, you know hardcore m- spots hardcore moves or being big or you know catchphrases they just like were really appreciative of the in ring art of it and were kind of savants at it you know the low keys the AJ Styles Samoa Joe um, Paul London guys like that that just hap- I mean that just all happened to be free agents at the same time. I feel like if ROH had started in a different era, you wouldn't have gotten that. I don't think that like the, the, there's just always that crop of guys, and the ROH just came along to take advantage of it. I feel like they both coincidentally came along at the same time, and it just was a perfect mix, and it gave somebody like American Dragon a place to become a legend in the U.S., uh, you know, and gave Samoa Joe a place to become a legend in the U.S. And, you know, allowed Paul London to be noticed and CM Punk to be noticed and guys like that, that, you know, where, you know, I, cause I, you know, you look at the indies now and there's a lot of great talent on the indies, but I don't think that it's the same where it's like you have this whole generation of just all time greats, obvious all time greats, you know, in their early twenties at the same time, you know, creating this amazing scene. I, I, I don't think that happens in every era. And I think this was just an amazing coincidence.
0: It was was a perfect storm of guys who were really getting enthusiastic about wrestling in their teens during the wrestling boom and getting really influenced by Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart and the WCW great workers and the cruiserweight division. And then just as they're getting ready old enough to enter the wrestling business, there isn't the wrestling business really to enter. You know, there's one company that still has size biases and uh, biases and... ECW's gone, WCW is gone, Japan's not even quite as vibrant, it's starting to go a little to uh, cool off a bit so you kind, you have a boom that creates this talent and then the boom isn't there when they're starting to be ready to come in and Ring of Honor is one of those companies that benefits greatly from that
1: and they benefit greatly from Ring of Honor existing
0: yeah, absolutely and going back to the match uh, the other thing I'll say is one thing I like, but what I, what obviously other than the tie limits it from being a great match, but I think is also one of its strengths, is they don't wrestle it like they wrestle it for what it is, which is it's the middle match in a gauntlet match. Dragon gets a lot of the offense in the first half. He builds to, you know, London getting a few big near falls and spots at the end, but, you know, Dragon's always great at working with a mean streak, at dominating, and they're not trying to do everything here with their nine minutes. They're not trying to work a 50-50 even-steven match. Dragon has to work a big, long match later in the gauntlet. London's wrestled two times already, so it makes sense to work it the way they did, too. Sometimes with gauntlet matches, I feel like the problem is all the matches just feel like separate matches, and there's no connective tissue to it, where... Even in the first match of this gauntlet, Michael Shane sells an arm injury fairly well from Punk working on it. As soon as the second guy comes in to wrestle, as soon as London comes in, Shane completely drops it for that entire short match. Where, you know, they they look at it as separate matches. But I like matches like this where it feels like you can feel London, you know, he's wrestled two matches already. And Dragon's a really, really good wrestler. So it's not going to be even Steven all the way. And... They'll have their chance to have a 50-50 from the ground up, you know, both rested match. And it's going to be really, really good if memory serves correctly. And you
1: could tell from this just – like, and I'm sure Gabe noticed it too. Like, these two have great chemistry. Like, this, this they just click together. Like I said, they didn't do the all-out great match, but
0: they clicked. I think this might have been their first match ever together. I don't know if they worked elsewhere, but Gabe even brings up, I think, the interesting point of – they were both trained in the same wrestling school, the TWA, but not in the same class. So they got this weird connection. Yet they're not—they're not contemporaries like Dragon and Spanky are.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: So, so that's an interesting element to it too. And moving on, we get the first ever defense of the Ring of Honor Tag Team Titles. Before we go
1: on to that, oh. I, just, I just really want to quickly get your thoughts on that entire gauntlet, as in general, as like a whole, like what, if you consider it as one thing. Because I thought that it, you know, it's not like everything about it was great, but I thought the fact that it was there and took up the bulk of the first hour after an already pretty good scramble, um, I thought it really made this show already seem a lot better than other shows. It felt like everything in the first part of the show, like, mattered. There felt like it was stakes and there was – it was more serious. There was not – there wasn't as much goofiness, you know – you know, no filler at all in the first hour. I thought it really got the show off to a hot start, those two segments.
0: I think it makes, also makes a difference where everything has purpose. Like, there's no jokey, dumb segments that are for angles that you don't give a shit about that feel inconsequential. Like, everything here is building to a number one contenders match. And I guess we should note that they said the final person in the gauntlet is AJ Styles, but to give Dragon a chance to rest they're scheduling that match for much later in the show. So this isn't technically the end of the gauntlet. This is the end of the kind of the portion of the match where it's one after another, after another, the technical final match of the gauntlet will be later in the show. But yeah, I I thought I liked this, um, as a whole, but, uh, I don't know if I quite liked it as a whole as much, maybe as you're saying, but I think it's, it's miles better than what Ring of Honor was doing before in their undercard. And again, everyone here is someone you're interested in seeing. I mean, Michael Shane's maybe on the borderline, (laughs) but just that makes a big difference to me, where everyone here is like, even if I'm not interested in the match as a whole, it's like, yeah, I want to see what CM Punk's doing. Yeah, I want to see what Red's doing. Yeah, I want to see what London's doing. And you're getting all these first-time matchups all like just spammed out at once. So that's kind of a really cool little treat to get. Agreed. You know, London Red for the first time, Dragon London for the first time, uh, CM Punk's debut, and it's all coming in what technically is one match. Agreed. But next we get the first uh, debut, the first defense of Ray of tag titles. The Prophecy are defending against a team, except it's a weird six-man tag for the two-on-two tag titles because it's Christopher Daniels, Donovan Morgan, and Samoa Joe, escorted to the ring by simply luscious defeating low key Doug Williams and homicide in 23 minutes, 45 seconds via ref stoppage. When Joe makes homicide pass out to the rear naked choke, AKA the coquina clutch. Um, Okay, so this is really weird where Gabe says on commentary, the prophecy has found a loophole where they said since they were given trophies and not t- tag title belts when they won the tag titles, and since those trophies say the prophecy on them, the prophecy are using that as an excuse to defend the titles in any form they want with any combination of people they want. So basically, free bird rules. And this is the first ever defense of the titles. It's a three-on-three Gabe doesn't seem to know what's going on because at one point he and Jeff Gorman on commentary talk about you know I think Gorman asks you know if the face team wins which who who's going to hold the belts of the three of them and Gabe just goes you know I don't know and
1: and at one point like, and at one point Gabe is like what kind of booking is this the titles defended in a in a six
0: man that's how he starts the match he says quote what kind of booking is this like right off the jump he's being self deprecating <laughs> and it's funny because. We talk about Gabe's always the guy with too many answers, and he's too direct. This is one of the only times he doesn't have the answer, and it's kind of a important question, which is, who wins this, you know, and why is this allowed, you know? Ring of Mars is one of the rare companies where actually say they might have needed an authority figure at this point because there's too <laughs> many there's too many vague declarations from Gabe that ROH believes ROH says this, and too many decisions that don't seem to have a really good explanation or at least the right mouthpiece to uh, really sell the explanation. But as for the match itself, uh, Homicide is taking Michael Modest's spot here. This was supposed to be Michael Modest on the face team, but he got into the uh, argument with Gabe that we mentioned on a previous show. He's not going to come back to Ring of Honor, so Homicide benefits again. Um, Gabe makes the interesting point that Everyone except Dub Williams in this match has recently been to Japan. Daniels works in Michinoka Pro as Curryman. He actually outright says that Daniels is Curryman. Donovan Morgan works for Pro Wrestling Noah. Samoa Joe and Low Key work for Zero One. And Homicide just had a big Japan tour. So I thought that was kind of a neat... Um, way to praise those guys and Gabe even goes, you know, Doug Williams is in Japan. and I don't know why, but we're happy to have him. Like he's, he's almost as like chiding Japan for not booking Doug Williams, which I thought was cute. I agree with him. Yeah, me too. And this was another good match. Um, it's again, a match that's, I, I keep pointing this out, but there's a lot of these matches that I feel like would be different in today's Indies where they're not going 99 miles an hour, right from the beginning. It, it's, I don't say there's a huge story to this match, but it definitely has a beginning, middle, and ending where they build and ramp it up. They start a bit slower. And I felt Samoa Joe was the star of this match. I felt like Doug Williams looked pretty good. He'd be my second best-looking guy in this match. I don't know about physical looks, but in terms of his wrestling. Great. But now, Samoa... now,
1: now I'm going to be distracted trying to rank the, be- the how good-looking <laughs> these these six guys are.
0: Yeah, um, low key number one. I don't. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, Samoa so, so Joe was the star in wrestling ability because I would say he's two or three years away from his prime as a worker. But in terms of his physical peak, already, he is. This is his prime. He is so light on his feet and spry. Every time his team is getting uh, pinned, he's the guy just jumping in the ring right away, kicking the to break up the pin and getting right back out. When they do this huge dive train at one point in the match, Doug Williams, this big, thick guy, he does the uh, dive from the top to the floor. And you go, man, no one's going to top that. And then Joe, instead of doing what he would do in later years, which is the really cool tope suicida where he leads with his elbow through the ropes, he does like a flipping dive over the top rope. Like Joe at this point was spry enough where he could like jump out of the ring, over the top. He's only, or at he's least done, he's only
1: done that move a few times. One other time that I can remember him doing it was in that famous three-way at Unbreakable in 2005 with uh, Daniels and Styles and TNA. I can't remember him doing that move too many other times, though.
0: Yeah, I, I it, it's something you wouldn't cork, cork a lot, and here, obviously, they build the whole dive train to It gets a big reaction to see Joe do that. And Joe already feels like a hot guy in ring of honor. And he's only, I think this is his second match in and everyone, you know, everyone gets their moments to shine here. It's a little weird seeing low key kind of take a step back, but he's not the focal point. Like he would be in almost every match he's in, but that makes sense when you consider he has a second match. He has to wrestle that night. Um, I like the tease at the very start where Joe wants to wrestle key, but then, um, he get the prophecy tag him out behind his back. I think they have like Daniels tags Joe and then Daniels gets in and teases that he's going to fight low key. And then he tags to more Ma- uh, Donovan Morgan immediately. And I thought that was a nice piece of character work where Daniels is the chicken shit, not wanting to fight his biggest rival on even grounds and also emphasizes the whole, Joe's the hired gun who kind of actually has friction with the prophecy who's paying him because Joe clearly wanted to uh, fight Loki again, and Daniel's denied him that, that opportunity. In fact, I don't know if they get any real big sequence in this match, or maybe they get a little bit, I'm not sure, but good match, builds to some big falls at the end, Um. Uh, it, it, not a crazy show-stealing match. I never got the impression that they were taking time off, but I never also got the impression that they were trying to steal the show from what was coming later, and probably a good decision. What did you think?
1: Um, I thought that it was, like you, I, I would agree with you. It was good. Um, I, uh, I also would agree that Joe was the star, and I think that it was definitely by design. You know, it's interesting, Joe, if you look at his history... Every single time he comes into a promotion, I think the promotion ends up doing more with him than they want than they expected to very quickly. You know, like he came into ROH; he had that match with Low Key was supposed to be a one time thing, right? And he be- and already by this show, Gabe's like, "All right, I'm putting you over everybody," right? And then within a few months, he's the champion. Um, goes into TNA; same thing. He becomes the dominant star in TNA uh, very quickly. Um, WWE. I don't think that that you we we would have anticipated WWE putting him in the SummerSlam main event right when he came in and now he is. And I think to me that just shows just how amazing Joe is. Um, another thing I would say about Joe, he's not quite as fully formed here as Brian Danielson was, but he's close. Um, you know, he, there's a degree of like the intensity in the way he carries himself that isn't quite there by this point. But a lot of his in-ring shtick is there. A lot of the moves he does, um, he already seems like a star. His execution is really good. Um, you know, he seems like a world beater, and um, and I think that you know that's what they wanted, and he delivered it for him. Uh, like you said, Doug Williams is really good. I feel like everything that Doug Williams does is uh, like looks great at this point. You know, his his mat wrestling, his chain wrestling. You know, he just. He's, you know, maybe not quite as impressive as as Danielson, but he uh he's pretty close, I would say. It's a different kind of thing. Danielson has this like deep intensity to every move, whereas Doug Williams is just can make what you would think is pretty basic wrestling, counter wrestling just super fun and entertaining. And I think uh, you know, it's a really good skill to have. Um the concept of the legal man was like non-existent in this match. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm not the kind of guy who'd get annoyed by that, but man, they were really just like, everybody was pinning everybody, uh, coming in and out of the ring, basically scramble rules without saying it, even though it was a tag title match. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. Like you don't really see a match like this where they really slow it down so much at the beginning on the Indies. You know, like you even had a little bit of a pre-heat segment where the babyfaces were cutting off the ring and attacking Daniels. And then kind of the the Joe kept, you know, breaking everything up and then the heels took over for a little while before they went into their their dive sequence. But yeah, sorry. You're going to say I,
0: something. I, I actually I actually thought that the uh that Daniel sequence was kind of weird cuz I feel like it's the uh It's the second match in Daniel's short tag run in Ring of Honor where he's had almost a face and peril sequence where I think he had it also with Togo and Hadaka, a shorter one. But here at one point, um, all three guys on the face team are tagging out and taking turns beating down Daniels. I think at one point, like, a couple of them the, the aren't the legal man have him in the corner and they're like biting him or or not maybe not biting him but like choking him or attacking him or yeah. something and it feels like he's playing the face for a little bit which is it, it's not um it's obviously i thought the match was good it doesn't kill the match for me but it just felt the number one it felt weird that the number one heel in the promotion was having an extended sequence where you know guys were tagging in and out putting him in, in submissions doing moves to him you know you you don't want him to put him in a position where you feel sympathy for him, I think,
1: yeah true and and um, I guess you know heels and faces weren't so important to early r o h um the way they were in other places, so I guess you know it's not as bad, but I did notice that too, um I thought that you know like at parts the the crowd is a little bit quieter than I would have expected for this match. But they got up for all the right parts, um, and it was obviously a big push for Joe. I think we neglected to mention earlier there was a promo with the prophecy, where they were talking about, you know, where they where Daniel kind of chided Joe for shaking Loki's hand, and Joe just got in his face and was like, like you, like I told you, like you hired me, but I'm not gonna just, you know, I'm not gonna um, dishonor myself and. And, you know, not, not follow the code of honor. I'm, I'm, gonna, you know, I'm not going to embarrass myself like that. So he pretty much straight up said, I'm going to shake hands. And he does at the end of the match after he wins. Um, so it was a little bit of a structural kind of a mess. Like it was a little bit all over the place. But I thought that it was good. Like it was very, it was, it was I would say, entertaining enough to be solidly good. And it, it, got, it got done what it needed to get done.
0: And the choke, it, it uh, debuted the choke in Ring of Honor, and obviously when you debut a move like this, a simple move, it's not over at first. The crowd isn't expecting that to be the finish at all Where with Homicide passing out in a choke, just a standard rear naked choke. But, you know, that that's something you have to do if you yeah. want to get a move like that over. You have to educate them.
1: you got to invest the time in. To get the move over, and they did. Uh, I, after the, yeah, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, I was, was going to say, I think even Joe in the past has said that he and Gabe knew, like, when Joe wanted to try it, that it wasn't going to happen all at once. It, it was going to take time.
1: Right. And, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's reaped the benefits. Um, I, I noticed after the match that you had, um, you know, they they really went right to the dissension. You know, Daniels and Morgan leave, and they they push Joe, um, a, out of anger, and then they they run to the back, and he's kind of like walking after them a little bit but not really like chasing them he's kind of being calm cool collected um and then afterward they really milk the reaction for homicide like you you know it's one of those things where they they leave the camera on him and you do this so the crowd slowly realizes they're supposed to cheer him so they kind of <laughs> they kind of give a a big a big cheer for homicide and chant his name
0: yeah and they're saying that he passed out in the choke so that you know Loki and Williams are trying to, you know, talk to him and help him come to. And it's a segment where I actually feel like it could have used commentary because they stopped talking for this part. But once Homicide recovers, it's like he and Key shake hands, and Williams realizes he can't shake hands because he lost the stip match to Daniels on the show before. See,
1: I didn't even notice that.
0: See, yeah, like it's it's easy to miss. That's my point. And he ends up giving them hugs instead of uh, handshakes. And because there's no commentary, I think most people probably miss that. You know, that's just one of the ways, even though it's not a great story, I think that's a point where you actually needed Gabe on commentary to say, you know, look at him, he wants to shake hands, but he can't, you know, this is all because of Christopher Daniels, damn him, you know.
1: Did Did they mention that at all during on commentary, that he couldn't shake hands anymore? I don't remember them saying it.
0: I don't think they did, at least for this show. I mean, it will come into play later, but... This is really it is it's it's a it's a blink or you miss it moment where it's it's pretty subtle the way it comes off because mm. like you said you're more focused on homicide recovering and it feels more like homicides moment but then there's that point where he's recovered and Williams has to give them hugs instead of handshakes right. because Key and um, homicide get to handshake and he can't but it also makes you realize. It's not a big deal because he just gives him a hug. So like, right? And, nobody, no, and, no, and
1: nobody's mad at him. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not like oh, you didn't respect us because you didn't you use two hands to show respect instead of one. I mean, yeah. but one other thing I really want to complain about about this match. Simply luscious keeps standing on the hard camera side of the ring, dead center, with her head often blocking things, and it's just. Every time I see Simply Luscious, I keep looking for this thing that's going to justify why people early on were saying, oh, you know, Ray of sees great things in her. They think she, they're really impressed by her. She doesn't even seem to know. She doesn't cut a good promo. She's not a good wrestler. She doesn't even really seem to know how to position herself as a, you know, a manager. And...
1: Well, that's something you got to be told, I, th- I would think.
0: But you know. again you know she that's yet another discernible skill she doesn't have which is just yeah. get out of the way of the camera you know you're standing right in the middle of the shot and there's there's a couple times where guys are doing submission holds on this night and simply luscious's head is right in front of the guys <laughs> so when you're ever you're getting the hard camera shot you don't see anything but the back of her head and just a a little annoying thing that bugged me but now we're going to move on to um, what really bugged me. And this is, this is the thing that made me the second most angry watching Ring of Honor in the rewatches so far. Apart from the incredible homophobia of our now famous opening segment to our first episode. This is Alexis Lurie taking on and defeating Allison Danger, scored to the ring by Mace. No Buffy here. Via pinfall in three and a half minutes. After hitting an inverted DDT, this was fucking dreadful in every way. You want to dice it up? I know it's your turn, Matt, but I no, have no, to. No, no, go
1: ahead, go ahead. I need, I need to hear this.
0: This is um, Gabe Sapolsky. Like we, we've heard on other shows, Steve Carino be sexist with simply luscious and nearly orgasm watching her wrestle and talk about how fun it's going to be to see women have a cat fight, whatever. Gabe Sapolsky, you would think, well, maybe that was just Steve on his own. Gabe is just as bad here, if not worse. I think one of the first things he says when this match starts is, quote, they're going to be touching each other. They're going to be hitting each other. They're going to be spanking each other. This is going to be good. And Gabe has this weird voice. I've never heard him use before or since where he only he has this weird, like, pervy, breathy voice he uses for a couple moments where he kind of talks like I do when I want to make a joke, and I'm not sure it's going to land where it's like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, when he says something really, like, like he's almost embarrassed that he um, is saying these things, but he keeps saying them. At one point, he even says, when did I become Jerry Lawler? It's like, yeah. it's, re- it's really weird. Re- he's almost self-aware that he's doing something really stupid, but yet he will keep doing it. And I'd like to say it was just the sexism that was bad. But this match was easily the worst match in Ring of Honor history thus far. Alice in Danger, I remembered her being a fairly good, competent women's wrestler years later. She is fucking dreadful here. She barely does anything here but do upskirt shots, cheating, and taking bumps. But even how she takes bumps, how she moves in the ring, she looks barely trained. Like, fucking horrible. And it's just... I don't... Gabe on the show yet again did that stupid thing where he's like, you know, Ring of Honor is not sports entertainment. And yet all we've seen on these shows is we've seen some really good wrestling, some really serious stuff. But we've seen all the worst parts of sports entertainment. We've seen homophobia. We've seen violence against women because I'll note Mace, Colt. Coxer her um, Alexis Lurie after the match so we continue the streak of every ring of honor show has had a man hitting a woman on it every single one as if it is a rule they have that that has to be an element to the show um, we've had the homophobia the sexism just the goofy gimmicks that and s- things that are just so dumb and don't make any positive contribution to the show
1: the only thing we haven't had yet was xenophobia as far as i can tell that's the only like common wrestling trope that i haven't seen yet in roh
0: and uh, roh had an faq on their website at the time and someone asked a question referencing the katie vick angle and again ring of honor got all like high and mighty like we won't do any kind of angle like that it's like you're doing every other fucking angle they're doing at that time you're you're doing so many of the stupid things they're doing and you're acting like you're so far above it and it it just I, i i mean i realize women's wrestling was not taken as seriously in the u.s as it is now they didn't have the more vibrant women's wrestling scene on the Indies, WWE sure as hell wasn't taking it more seriously.
1: Although they were but, just they were just starting to take it more seriously than this.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't get how you can be so progressive like on the men be like, oh, we're gonna make that we're gonna you know, Ring of Honor, their on the first year, their banner said, we don't in- imitate, we innovate. Yet when it comes to all of this stuff, it is exactly what WWE was doing, if not a little bit worse, like you're just alluding to. And I don't get how you can point yourself, like paint yourself as progressive in one end. And on the other end, literally mention, oh, we're, I'm being like Jerry Lawler right now.
1: I guess the best you could say is like, they were young and sexist guys. And maybe they learned their lesson over time. You know, you know, I, that's that's what you hope. But yeah, I mean, this was obviously shitty. I didn't, I didn't have the strong reaction to it the way that I did for the Christopher Street Connection thing just because this is still kind of par for the course of wrestling, so I'm a little bit numb to it. Like, this is a shitty women's match with a pervy announcer. But it did, you know, still include, you know, some of the elements of, you know, like, Alice in Danger crawling slowly over her. Like, oh, like, you know, oh, this is so gay, isn't it so bad? You know, that stuff. And also, you know... I agree with you she was really bad here. It'll be interesting to see cuz there are matches involving her by like in like 05. It's interesting to see if she gets better. Um obviously we know that Laurie has much better uh better matches in the future. Maybe not in ROH though, but you know, it's interesting that you know Laurie is sort of treated as like such a talent and they don't really let her it's it's another situation like um you know like a few other guys where it's like we don't really get to see, you know we don't really get to see what's good about her um like lexis alexis larry in the time she's been in ROH so far she seems like besides a couple moves that she does she seems like an interchangeable you know body in there they don't there's nothing that they do with her that has her that makes her stand out wouldn't you say
0: yeah and and like you said it's weird because they are positioning her as kind of like their big women's wrestler where I would say two thirds of this match's commentary is sexist, creepy bullshit, and one third of it is Gabe putting over how great an athlete Alexis Lurie is. And I mean, she does hit, you know, I think a big dive to the outside, and and she is better in that sense than the Simply Luscious and um, Alice in Danger. Not that that's a high bar to clear, but then you look at how they're positioning her. The the angle at the end of the match where Mace punches her, that sets up what they're announcing as Mace versus Alexis Lurie on the next show. So again, you can portray her as the serious athlete and this great prospect, but you're putting her in the side usual... The yeah. Show. yeah. And I guess we should, one of the signs that this show is better is that... In a lot of the old Ring of Honor shows, the earlier ones we've reviewed, it feels like there would have been two to four of these segments. Here it stands out as, like, the one really terrible, offensive, pointless, goofy waste of a segment.
1: Two to four of these segments plus, like, backstage stuff about it. And this is just as kind of a self-contained piece of shit.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, It's – they – also, you know, I said this before. Obviously all portrayed violence against women is bad. But it does seem a little bit worse when it's literally a punch in the face as opposed to some silly wrestling move, you know, Um, which is what Mace does. He punches her in the face and and then he suplexes her and then he wipes his hands like, "Ooh, it's gross to touch a girl. Um, Yeah, I I agree with you. This this sucked.
0: Yeah. And and obviously, again, it's like. We're getting this weird separate division now. Of it's not a women's division; it's a women and gay people division. It's it's like like you said, the sideshow.
1: Exactly. And it, the it's sideshow just, with an added element of like clearly offensive, regressive ideas and attitudes.
0: Yeah, and you know, I, I like some offensive things in life. I mean, we all have things that we like that we feel a little guilty about, or a little bit weird, or that might bug other people. Problematic
1: but, faves. But say. but.
0: Yeah. <laughs> But this isn't even – I don't think this isn't even entertaining. The match was terrible. The comedy wasn't much of it, and it wasn't very funny. I mean, it's not even titillating. I just uh, – anyway.
1: It would um, be funny if at the end of all that you would you said like – but I have to admit it was titillating.
0: <laughs> I have to admit I was very gratified by this match. <laughs> uh, I was like, man, you thought that was a criticism. I love this. I hate women. <laughs> but um, – <laughs> Next, we had um, another little short segment, but relatively painless. With a bunch of
1: little little short
0: wrestlers. (laughs) Bunkhouse Brawl from the Carnage crew of H.C. Loke and Tony DeVito, defeating the Ring Crew Express of Dun & Marcos, who for the first time are actually called, with graphic and everything, the Ring Crew Express. Well, but
1: wait, hold on a second. I have to correct you. This is the first time they're called the Ring Crew Express, but they are not just referring to Dun & Marcos. The Ring Crew Express is the entire Ring Crew... Uh, going up against the Carnage crew.
0: Yes, because not only do they wrestle, it's not a two-on-two match. It's a two-on-two, and then some other ring crew guys run into the ring and also wrestle or basically just take a couple bumps match. So um, the Carnage crew win in 2 minutes 40 seconds when Loke pinned Marcos after they hit a spike pile driver off the second rope on him. Um, not much to say about this. It was short. The ring crew guys got beat up. Um, well,
1: the idea of it was that this was a warm-up for an upcoming bunkhouse match they were going to have against Homicide and Abdullah the Butcher.
0: Yes, I, I was going to say this was basically just an excuse for Gabe to plug the f- upcoming match for two and a half minutes. Um, even though it was called a bunkhouse match, really... There was just a couple chair shots, and otherwise it would have been a completely normal legal wrestling match, they like a have, scramble.
1: They should have done a full on, just like bunkhouse stampede, with like in a cage, where, um, <laughs> yeah, where like they had to, where they had to throw all these guys out of a cage.
0: I would love if they put a cage and they tore it down and and built it up and tore it down just for this match, especially considering that this show went an hour late and CZW was waiting well, also and they're considering- like, no
1: also considering the ring crew was involved in the match, so they'd have to put up the cage, get into it, then get thrown out of it, and then take down the cage.
0: That would be great if the Karnes crew, like, like yelled at them and watched them take down the cage after they beat them, like... Yeah, that honestly is something they should have made them do at least once. That's true. There should have been at least one of those things where do one of those crazy occasionally Ring of Honor brawls where they would ha- save that for the main event, and then have just have the cameras stay on afterwards and have the ring crew have to take apart the ring that they just wrestled in, like while they're selling. I mean, that would have been incredible, actually. It would,
1: it would have been fun story. Um, sometimes in ROH um, back in the old days, they would actually like ask fans if they wanted to help take down the ring. And I remember one time, Rhett Titus was like, hey, you want to help take down the ring? And I was like, I, sorry, I got to go, man. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't have time to stay and help take down the ring. But, you know, ROH, you know, they had all these big-name wrestlers, uh, at least to nerds like me. But they were still, you know, a, uh, a mom-and-pop organization for a while, with the need, needing the help of the fans.
0: With apparently lazy ring crew members. <laughs> Rhett Titus was like, hey, you want to be part of the business, Matt? <laughs> hey, you help me lift this plank.
1: Yeah, somehow, somehow he knew my name. I don't know.
0: Somehow you weren't fooled by this. Yeah. No, but, he, was, he was
1: just, they were just, they were asking honestly. It wasn't like they were trying to like lure me. It was just like, hey, you want to help? And I was like, mm.
0: I mean, I'm sure some people would get a kick out of that, but it, yeah. it does feel kind of weird. And I also, yeah. I mean, I guess it's better having them help take it apart than helping set it up. Like, yeah, yeah, hey, imagine, random guy.
1: imagine there's some skill involved in setting it up. Yeah, like, hey, you'll
0: figure it out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a nice tea. I'll, I'll come back to you in 15 minutes with a brisk. And
1: uh, <laughs> that's but, why, that's why you had those, um, like those ECW matches where uh, they went through the middle of the ring, like, they, like Bam and Bigelow and Taz. <laughs> <laughs> they got some fans to set up the ring. They had no idea what they were doing.
0: Big Show is a huge fan of um, every time he wrestles Brock Lesnar. He's like, this is a big match. I gotta prepare. You yeah. know what? Let's get a kid down here. It's going to be my good luck charm. Help Helps up the ring, kid. It's going to be an experience of a lifetime for you. And then, Like a literal that's what...
1: small child. <laughs> setting up the ring, leaving a big hole in
0: the middle. <laughs> it's like, ah, you've done enough. It's never going to matter. I'm not going to. Look at me, kid. Do you think I'm going to take a superplex tonight? How often does that happen? That's not going to happen tonight. You don't worry about it. You leave the center. It's okay. <laughs> but, um, anyway, uh Next segment was Gary Michael Capetta in the ring, and he introduces ECW alumni J.T. Smith, Mr. You Fucked Up, the guy who originated those chants when he legit fucked up moves, and then the crowd would chant that, and then it eventually became like a loving gimmick. And J.T. comes out. Gary remarks that J.T. hasn't been in Philly since 1997. I don't know if that's true or not. Wait,
1: Gary hasn't been? Oh, J.T. hasn't been in Philly. Yeah, Gary says J.T. Gary was just there two months ago.
0: Yeah. Sneaking in. And uh, Gary here, you know, remarks, this is his first appearance in Philadelphia since 1997. J.T. Smith gets in the ring and I can't understand what he's saying. No, nope. I am. Um, obviously, Ring of Honor, anything over the house, mic is hard to listen to, but I've never heard it this bad so far in the rewatch. I could not make out what he was saying. Joey Matthews comes out with uh, Special K's other members, Dixie and Izzy. Dixie's like limping and using a makeshift crutch because of his leg injury earlier. Joey gets on the mic. I can't understand what he's saying. Um, At this point, they eventually like call down JT, I guess, enough that JT attacks them. Special K starts attacking um, JT Smith. Then the big, mysterious, tall man with the dreadlocks and glasses comes into the ring, clears house, helps J.T. Smith up, shakes his hand, walks back to the crowd. Well, yeah,
1: you missed that the outcast killers made the save, even though the only time the ROH audience has even seen them before is when they jobbed in a minute to the insane clown posse.
0: Exactly, in a match that did not make tape. So if you were just watching the tapes... And this segment, when this beatdown happened, they didn't mention who their names were. I don't know if there was even commentary for that part. So you would have no idea who these guys were. You don't see them again after the match on this show. They're not announced. They're not named. And... There's a million reasons this segment shouldn't be on but I would say the number one one is the simple one which is you could not understand what they were saying. I went to other reviews to see if maybe they heard it. Uh, other reviews said I don't know what they were saying. And yet they <laughs> left it on the they left it on the tape. I mean
1: <laughs> just so we can have a segment that really advanced that slugger storyline of him coming out and doing the same thing he always does.
0: Yeah, and I felt I felt bad for J.T. Smith because you know obviously he was not a big star, but you see Tommy Dreamer get a big respectful thing, and J.T. Smith barely gets a chance to talk. It's in, inaudible for anyone at home, and he's basically just fodder to put over Slugger and the SAT. I mean the Special K. So I don't know if there's anything else to say about that. Just. Phew. But that's the last of those weird segments we're going to get tonight, because we move on to the Ring of Honor title match. It's Xavier making his first official defense with Simply Luscious at his side, doing his ring introduction for him, in fact, taking on and defeating Jay Briscoe in 20 minutes, 52 seconds, via pinfall after he hits the X-breaker neckbreaker with Jay on the top turnbuckle. Matt, what did you think would... I mean, did you think this was better than the first match these two had?
1: Definitely better than the first match. Um, the first match was kind of on the like low average to bad side. I thought. And I thought this was decent to you know almost goodish. Um, you know there were a few reasons for that. The making it good for one thing, um, Jay Briscoe, uh, his blade job, um, really added to the match. He bled a lot. His selling I thought was pretty good. You know, and Xavier did a decent job as, like, as if he, like, a mid-card heel beating on a a bloody underdog uh, opponent. Um, The problem is that this was not supposed to be a mid-card heel. He was supposed to be the ROH champion, and he did not seem like that, but... Um, you know, they had some, you know, they, the, you know, they kept their storylines going. Gabe got really, really mad at simply luscious interfering and trying to trip Jay. He started <laughs> yelling about how this was everything that ROH is against and, you know, went on and on and on about it to the point where I was like, geez, like, it's not that big of a deal. Um, <laughs> I, I almost was like, all right, I, I'm almost on this privacy side. If you're going to make as so much of a dick about it, geez. Um, but, um. You know, I thought like like Briscoe. I think in particular looked good here. You know, Xavier looked better. I would say, um, but still, you know, just he w- doesn't have it to be at that level at this point. But I thought Briscoe looked legitimately good. Like it's unbelievable that Briscoe was still like 18 or maybe almost 19 at this point, because I thought that his selling was really good. His intensity was good. I thought he was getting over. The crowd really liked him. You know, especially when he's when he bleeds. You know, they really start getting behind him. I thought that. Um, Xavier, you know, he still has some cool moves. I really love that thing where he springboards from the top rope where the, you know, springboards his legs onto the middle of the top rope and then does the moon, the moonsault or Arabian press onto the outside. Yeah,
0: it's like, so Arabian like that, press where you jump from the top to the ropes to start it. I yeah. mean, and it's to the outside. Yeah. Like you said, for, especially for a guy that thick, yeah, I he, mean,
1: that's, that, that might be one of my favorite moves and it's, I've only seen Xavier do it. So. I think that's really cool, and it always, to me, it, it always looks good. Um, and they, there's also at one point the announcers talk about a storyline involving like the reason that Jay's parents weren't there for his title match, and it was because quote Gabe Mark kept his parents there uh, from being at the show because he uh, because he had to make up some quote fake family emergency thing. <laughs> and and I and I was wondering like how does Gabe know that it's fake or how does Chris Lovey know that it's fake like the he investigated this and if so why didn't he tell the parents about this like Ooh. but so he's just he's sure that it's fake um, but that's why the parents aren't there.
0: What I love about that is Gabe goes on that a few – he mentions that a few times. Like, oh, you know, Mark deprived his brothers. His parents would have been here and they're not here. And finally it's like he almost feels like he has to make up a better excuse because at the near the end of the match, he says Mark told his parents that he totaled their pickup truck. And like, was, why didn't you <laughs> say that earlier? <laughs> and also like – That's also not the best thinking on your feet, but I have to admit, accidentally, I think Gabe came up with, like, a perfect Briscoe family crisis, because that feels like one, like, we can't come, like, did someone die? No, Mark, like, Mark totaled the pickup truck. The
1: Dodge pickup, yeah.
0: (laughs) Where are we going to move the chickens in now? So, I thought that was, I thought that was kind of cute, but.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, um. The crowd liked Jay, I thought. You know, they were into it. They weren't, like, emotionally invested. Like, it wasn't like they were like, you know, you know, please don't tap or anything like that. But it was – I thought that they liked him. You know, it gets – by the end, it gets to, you know, like just um, uh, Xavier hitting uh, the big moves. He counters the Jay Driller, hits a, hits a cobra clutch suplex, hits kiss your ex goodbye, gets two. Jay, you know, goes for a moonsault but Luscious throws the chair to distract throws in a chair to distract the ref and then runs around and crotches Jay and that's when Xavier Xavier hits the neck breaker for the three um, so you know so again much better than last month but it, you know it just didn't feel like a title match like a world title yeah. match and that's a problem when the title is new <laughs> you know you can't establish a title by having it be in mid-card matches
0: and something we talked about online before the show I mean a few couple days ago is this is a match I mean it's it's the it's a ROH title match, and it's on the show before the finals to a number one contenders match for the ROH title. And granted, on paper, it's obvious why because American Dragon and AJ Styles is a much bigger match than Xavier and an eighteen year old Jay Briscoe, or an any age Jay Briscoe. But um, it it's still in terms of just pure like in character storyline, it's just really weird that the world title match goes on directly before the number one contenders match and it's just another sign they didn't really have faith in xavier yet they still kept him as champ they made him champ and i thought this was an average match i i thought you and don't think it was
1: any better than the previous one
0: i thought it was better than the previous one but i feel like it got more time it had more bells and whistles you know jay bleeds and looks like he has strawberry syrup poured all over his head i think he's jay's one of the best blade guys of his generation which is something you don't get to see uh, much of now because the number of guys that bleed is less maybe good maybe bad but um i thought it was a better match they did more they they, they tried to make it longer and more epic i think and feel but i think i expect more like I've seen enough Xavier matches now where I'm like, all right, you know, you're getting a bigger push. You're getting more time here. And, and, and his performances aren't only that much, they're not that much better. They're a little bit better, but they're not that much different than his earlier matches, except they're longer. Like he doesn't work that much different as world champ than he did as undercard baby face. He, he growls at the fans once in a while he feels like a guy, he just, he doesn't have any hook to him. There's no urgency. There's no, I, I never feel like, I never feel the passion from him. I feel like he's just mechanically fine and great body. And I, I, even Jake here shows some baby face fire. You know, I don't see anything that like hooks me that way.
1: You know, wrestling is the only place where you could be like criticizing a guy and then just randomly throw in the phrase, great body, and it doesn't sound super weird. <laughs> <laughs> just like, oh, you know, he should be a better actor. You know, great body.
0: Great body. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, perfect body. Just you know, great. He's, and- he's,
1: you know, he's not the most – he's not a um, – you know his his Senate voting record is is just not what I was hoping for. Great body.
0: Uh, <laughs> I mean, have Orrin Hatch. I mean, I didn't agree with his last vote on health care, but man, did you see his oblique something I fantastic. Yeah. You know, you should see him in a gym locker room. But oh, and I have. <laughs> but should call him Orrin Habs. <laughs> okay, that, okay, edit that out. <laughs> but uh, do I have? But to? no, you don't. Okay. But um, we've edited too much. To my audio mishaps for those who have not heard the behind the scenes, which we are saving for through the years uncensored podcast way down the road, but... Um, average match, I-, I like some of Jay Briscoe's fire. I think the crowd was surprisingly quiet during parts of it and they were chanting, fuck hat guy from the old ECW fan who was there just to entertain themselves. I feel like they started to get into it about a third to half of the crowd got into it once Jay started bleeding. I feel like that shows you the power of blood because I feel like that did hook part of the crowd into the match made a huge difference like from that point on there there there's a portion of that crowd gets engaged
1: i would have probably i probably have this match like a star higher than it would have been if it wasn't for the drama added by briscoe's blade job
0: yeah and again he's one of the great bleeders um a couple interesting notes i found on this match i don't know if you noticed this but there's a point in this match where simply luscious throws a chair in the ring and i'm thinking Uh, And you mentioned a different one earlier, and I was thinking at this point, okay, the ref's going to get distracted removing the chair and something's going to happen. And at this point, Xavier's on the mat lying, and um, Jay's on top, and he's about to do a move. Well, the ref, to my surprise, just calmly uh, removes the chair. He doesn't get distracted for a second. Jay hits, I think, like a top rope rope, leg drop, gets a big near fall. And I thought, why did Simply Luscious do that? It served no purpose. She threw a chair in, he immediately threw it out, no one got distracted, didn't help Xavier.
1: To give, and Gabe, then, to give Gabe an excuse to start yelling.
0: But, to, a few minutes later, Jay Briscoe goes back up to top for the finish, where he's going to do another high-flying move, for a moonsault or something this time. And that's the pouring where the end happens, where Simply Luscious throws a chair in, um... You know, this time the ref gets distracted removing it as opposed to the first time. And then she's able to crotch Jay and Xavier hits the X breaker for the win. So my point is, I think Simply Luscious, there was someone must have told her before the match, when Jay goes to the top rope, you throw the chair in the ring. And she must have fucked it up or not been expecting Jay to go up earlier in the match. Because it looks pretty clear that she did the finish spot. And it wasn't time for that spot. And the ref rightly just ignored it. And the wrestlers ignored it. And then a few minutes later when Jay goes back up to the top. They do the spot correctly.
1: I might have missed that because there was a little bit of skipping in my DVD. So that might have been where it happened.
0: Hmm. Because I I felt it was weird. But then the end completely explained it for me. Um, There was also a moment in this match where. um, The ref. Where Simply Luscious is choking Jay on the ropes. And. The ref has to do one of those WWE, WCW things where they ignore it for a 100 years, where he's looking at every other side of the ring and pointing to random things. And eventually he can't stop ignoring it. So he turns and looks at um, Simply Luscious and Jay, points to them then turns back to the other side of the ring and points at something random while still yelling at Xavier. And Jeff Gorman is like, oh, the ref didn't see it. And Gabe gets really angry in his angry yelling voice. He goes, of course the ref didn't see it. He literally pointed at Simply Luscious, choking Jay Briscoe on the ropes. (laughs) And Gabe screams at the top of his lungs, of course he didn't see it. And it was was just another weird, aggressive Gabe moment but yeah, average match, crowd wasn't super into it, into the blood. Still probably one of the better Xavier matches, although it's a 20-minute Xavier match. Uh, fuck hat guy, I'll share the crowd's sentiments all these years later. Uh, that's about it.
1: But you know, it's just one weird thing I was thinking, totally random thought. Wouldn't it be weird to go through life, like just even for a short period of time, and like refer to yourself and have people refer to you? as Simply Luscious. Yes. <laughs> like, like, Just imagine, like, like, oh, yeah, that's me. I'm Simply Luscious. That's what they call me, Simply Luscious. Oh, hi. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, nice to meet you. I'm Simply Luscious. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: it's got to be weird. Simply, simply Luscious. But <laughs> I think we went through that once in one of the early Ring of Honor shows where where uh, Rob Feinstein is in a backstage segment with her when she's <laughs> complaining about something, and he has to call her Simply Luscious, like by her full <laughs> – two word god given name simply luscious like hold on simply luscious I'll handle this don't worry <laughs> like I just
1: can't just- imagine being called that. Like if like she must have laughed at least at some point when someone's called her Simply Luscious. Like that's gotta be just an embarrassing name to have.
0: Simply Luscious is a name where if you were a stripper and someone was saying alright here's a list of proposed names we got you'd be like whoa 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 simply luscious that's way too over the top for surfing like yeah. let's take it down half a step like fuzzy peaches that's good simply luscious are you are you kidding me and yet that was that was her wrestling name simply luscious
1: <laughs> and the more i think about it the funnier it is anyway i'm yeah. sorry go on
0: so something that was not funny but aroused me just as much as simply luscious actually way more than simply luscious no offense to her was the finals the number one contenders trophy gauntlet match and that was aj styles defeating american dragon in 22 minutes 30 seconds via pinfall after he hits the styles clash actually his second styles clash of the match and this was just a great all match this was really really good I think this was the first time these two had ever wrestled. Gave at one point on commentary mentions that these two had requested earlier in ring of, in their Ring of Honor runs to the bookers that they wanted to wrestle each other. So, surprise, surprise, in this gauntlet, what a great coincidence for them. They get to wrestle each other. And just so good. Um, so, especially for two guys probably having their first time match. There, there's an opening sequence where AJ and drag and go to the mat and they're just doing really fast reversals and a lot of times in wrestling when guys do really fast like chain wrestling and reversals eventually like they lose the grip and it starts looking like two guys playing leapfrog (laughs) but but here they hold on just enough while going super fast and it looks really great gets a great reaction and it's funny like aj styles is a guy i think is really game at this point i think people stereotype him at some points at this age of his career, of his life and his career. But I feel like when he wrestled low-key, when low-key got stiff, he got really stiff right back and, like, gave him a black eye, I think, at at um, Honor Invades Boston. And when Dragon wants to do, like, technical wrestling on the mat, Styles will more than just hold his own with him. He, he's really adaptable. I think he's eager to do whatever his opponent wants to do, which... I think sometimes wrestlers who get um, like stereotyped as oh he's just a flyer, he's just one note. You have to watch what they're doing with guys who when they when, when they wrestle guys that aren't their typical kind of opponents because I think guys like AJ will show you they're willing to go different places if they have the right opponent. Like maybe there's a certain kind of match they're more prone to do naturally, but I mean, I think I feel like AJ could have done other stuff and he does stuff here where it's more of a dragon match where it builds, has a bunch of mat stuff, has some stiff strike exchanges and the AJ like athleticism is there, but it's more like in little dollops throughout the match. They kind of serve it up to you in little spots where he does the big spot where he is thrown towards the guardrail. He jumps over it in one big vertical leap, I think anyone who's seen a lot of AJ styles matches has seen him do that, but still really cool. Um, he does a spot where Dragon is going for a drop kick, and then AJ jumps for his own and drop kicks Dragon out of the air mid-drop kick with his own drop kick. That was really cool. Um, he At one point, Dragon does a drop hold to AJ, and AJ takes the momentum and bumps all the way from the ring, nearly the center of the ring, to under the rope's to the, the under the bottom rope to the floor and on paper that sounds ridiculous if you watch it it looks perfectly great and reasonable like he just again probably his athletic peak looks great doing that stuff and dragon is just on another level just so good so crisp um he he ends up getting busted open during this match because Hard way yeah i read it in live reports that uh it was when AJ did the uh, moonsault into the reverse DDT. They said the first time, apparently he kind of botched it, and his leg and foot smacked Dragon right in the head, and that's what busted him open. From the camera angle I saw, it looked a little bit rough, but no more rough than a lot of his executions of that move can be at times. Did the timing get- make
1: sense there? I thought the the blood came at a different time, like when they were like trading punches and forearms.
0: I'm not sure. I'm going from the roll report. They might have made a weird assumption. I did notice that move did look a little bit weird, so it's possible that maybe his head nicked him there. I'm not sure.
1: I just remember suddenly you didn't see anything on Dragon's face. They were trading punches, and then Dragon turned around, and his face was covered in blood.
0: Yeah, and it's a cut from right above the eye, you know, the eyebrow area. And I also, there's a lot of things I could talk about. There's so many This match didn't have, like, a big story, but it had so many cool, unique little moments from two guys that are really smart doing stuff on the fly. And there's, like, a kneeling chin lock where both guys are on their knees and each have the other in a chin lock simultaneously. Um, There's a point where Dragon does, like, a bridging suplex move and holds for the pin, and then to sell exhaustion, even when AJ kicks out, he just holds the bridge, like without moving for a few seconds and then crumples to the ground like he's just exhausted and almost out of it and the finish is one of my favorite AJ styles um treatments of the styles clash ever where Dragon's going up top uh AJ's able to get him like sitting on the top, he fights back and he tries to pull him off the top rope into the Styles Clash, but Dragon's holding on, so he ends up having to like bash him into the turnbuckle and powerbomb him a couple times. And just There's this huge struggle before he finally gets to hit the Styles Clash a second time. And I just really, really liked that, in, and I thought it was great. And I actually am really eager to see other matches, because it's weird as it sounds, I thought this was great, but it felt like they could have Done even more, like it's crazy.
1: Yes, maybe. Although in my, I, I, in my I've seen a lot of their matches. I mean, I, the, they had three in ROH, and I, I think this one's the best one by far. Um, but maybe I'll change my mind as we keep going. Um, their rematch is a year from now uh, in ROH in re, in ROH time at, uh, at a November two thousand three show. So we'll see how that holds up. But um, I thought, like, what what stood out to me about this match is it felt like the prototypical great roh match like just it was just like everything that like a top tier roh match um like you would expect from it in terms of the wrestling the stiffness the crowd reactions and i thought that it was one of the best matches of the year i'd say it didn't quite have the intensity and emotion of the low-key dragon match or the uniqueness and that's why i put that one ahead of it but i could see this one being my second favorite roh match of the year so far um just every they both guys look so great um that chain wrestling at the beginning that you were talking about like usually the guys do the wrestling at the beginning then they have a standoff and the crowd uh, applauds right this time the crowd started going nuts and cheering while they were exchanging the holds like in the middle of like the back and forth amateur like chain wrestling stuff the crowd just exploded into cheers and then when they let go they really exploded into cheers um So, I, uh, so I like that. I also like that they both went for covers a lot, like, trying to win. I thought that made, that separates them from other guys. Like, you could just, like, they just kind of get the psychology more than other wrestlers do. Like, they, they were both trying to win a lot, which I really appreciated. Um, all of the, you know, all the dragon stuff looked brutal. At one point, he does the top rope belly to back suplex that he always does, and AJ took a complete flip bump all the way over, landed on his face and stomach. Which oh yeah, I, which I thought was a really great spot. Um, another really great spot that was early was they're on the floor, Dragon whips AJ into the guardrail like. That everyone does and instead of taking at the guardrail AJ just fully jumps over the guardrail clears it dragon runs at him and AJ just s- uh, seamlessly kicks him in the face with a super kick and dragon does this like great knockout sell i thought it was just awesome so just everything about the match was awesome um you know at one point uh dragon like you know dragon's coming back you know they're chopping on their knees and then, and then Dragon just, like, gets dirty for a second and just, like, totally, like, rakes AJ's face. Like, just grabs his face and just walks him into the corner and then just unloads on him with forearms and kicks. And the crowd just goes nuts. Like, they, they, they just love that. And um, then, then AJ hits that inverted moonsault DDT and, for the, and then the crowd gets back into him. So, like, the crowd just goes back and forth and who they want. And like you said, the finish was awesome. Um... I don't know, everything everything was just great. At one point um AJ does like a like the only thing that was even slightly sloppy was this roundhouse kick that AJ gives to to Dragon's head, but even that looked brutal, you know, in a in a in a good way. Um it it was just awesome. And you know what's funny about it? Let's say if Daniel Bryan came back from, you know, like his, you know, if WWE cleared him, you know that it's not going to happen, but if they did and they decided like this would be like his return match, at you know WrestleMania, like it's not so out of the question that this number one contenders ROH match from 2002 would be perceived as a viable WrestleMania main event. You know nowadays, that's pretty crazy when you think about it, isn't it?
0: I I thought a similar thing. I thought like this would probably be if you could ask WWE fans right now, and I mean I am a WWE fan to some extent still, but if you asked me or most WWE fans, like. Anyone that's employed, including, you know, like guys like Daniel Bryan and The Undertaker, name a dream match. I imagine Daniel Bryan versus AJ Styles would be pretty high on the list for a lot of fans. Yeah. And here it is in 2002, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like a a possible WrestleMania main event. And now we're watching them in their basically their athletic primes. And it's great. It's freaking awesome.
0: And I think if you put this match on WrestleMania, like this same match, it wouldn't disappoint people. And this is a match they had when they were really young, you know, 15 years
1: This exact match would get high match of the year votes uh, if it was done by these two guys in their uh, mid-30s or late-30s.
0: Yeah, in front of a hot, big, giant crowd, you know, even just in like a 17,000-seat arena for like a major pay-per-view I think this would get a much – be remembered much differently than it is where people who've watched it remember it's a great match. But it's – yeah, it would be like a legendary modern WWE match probably just because of their star power now and how good it was.
1: But as it stands, it's one of the top matches of 2002 for ROH, I'd say, easily.
0: And it's it's a great match that – It's one of the best ones that doesn't involve Loki in it, because it seems like Loki in the first six months was involved in almost every great match. I'd
1: say the best one that doesn't involve him.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because um, it doesn't really, like, maybe like you were alluding to. It's it doesn't have a hook. It doesn't have a storyline. It's there's not it's their first meeting. It doesn't have a lot of like emotion or tension to it. So in a way that takes a tiny bit away, but in a way it's impressive because they had like nothing to build on with this match. They had to build everything from the ground up tonight. And in fact, Dragon had already wrestled almost ten minutes earlier in the night. So that's impressive too, where it's a crowd that's probably getting a little bit tired that's looking at their watches and going, you know, come on, we gotta go to the C Z W show and they still get the crowd to go crazy for a lot of it yeah, and I thought the
1: crowd was great for this match. I I you know I I, so that's why that's why you know part of what I was saying earlier like that I didn't didn't seem like they were restless
0: see I, I thought they were a little quiet in parts but I thought they they were there for everything that they needed to be there for I felt like if there was a tiny bit of a lull they weren't like making up the noise but that's understandable again where long show they gotta go to czW some of them I do not all of them but um
1: yeah, I see. I don't even think the CCW thing played in. I think that was that the, there was just normal ebbs and flows to the crowd uh, reactions. I don't know. That's how it felt to me anyway.
0: So, great match. AJ Styles is your first ever holder of the number one contenders trophy. After the match, they do – I don't know if this is a purposeful callback, but I liked where a uh, Dragon grabs the trophy and kind of teases that he's going to destroy it like he destroyed the tag trophies. But then, of course, he hands it to AJ and shakes his hand. So a nice little tease, again, playing off a couple shows earlier. And afterwards, as Dragon goes to the back, Gabe offhandedly mentions that Dragon's real name is Brian Danielson. And that he heard that um, Brian Danielson might want to start wrestling under that name. So that's the first Ring of Honor acknowledgement, and I guess kind of the official transition to... He is, from here on, not going to be American Dragon. He's going to be Brian Danielson.
1: American Dragon Brian Danielson.
0: Yeah, he's going to have the nickname still, but that's no longer going to be his working name. And camera follows Dragon to the back where he, or Brian Danielson, where he is immediately ambushed by the prophecy who is beating him down. They go into the ring and start beating down AJ Styles before Dragon and Jay Briscoe run back in and start fighting back and fight the prophecy off. And these feuds are all going to keep continuing.
1: This feud must continue.
0: Yes. So, oh, and the other thing to note there is Samoa Joe was not with the prophecy because he's the hired gun. So, um,
1: we will see see Samoa Joe in one moment though.
0: (laughs) Yes, because we get the main event, which is Shinjiro Otani and Masato Tanaka Taking on and defeating Lowkey and Steve Carino in 15 minutes 42 seconds, when Otani pins Carino after hitting a spiral bomb, his rotating power bomb. And before I give it to you, Matt, I'll notice, I'll note that um, we do get a couple little zero one bits. Gabe mentions that. Uh, This is being taped by Samurai TV for 0-1. We see uh, one of their big president head honchos and the crowd getting an ovation before the match. Loki has now switched to his more colorful blue and gold 0-1 tights. And Samoa Joe, in something that's not acknowledged by commentary, is Steve Carino and Loki's second. He accompanies Carino to the ring. So all these little touches that are kind of differentiated from what you would normally see in a match like this in Ring of Honor... Matt, what did you think about the big main event that drew all the people?
1: Well, First of all, before the match, um, they introduced Mr. Nakamura from uh, from Zero-One. That's a different Nakamura, by the way. <laughs> um, and um, also, before I talk too much about the match, during the match, Gabe does a lot of plugs for upcoming ROH stuff, and at one point he mentions that uh, in a that final battle, Conan will be coming to <laughs> ROH, and this isn't going to be WCW Conan. He's coming... Uh, to bring Lucha Libre back.
0: Oh my god. So, I had that written as a note. You go on.
1: Well, so he's like, you know, he because and then Jeff Gorman's like, "Yeah, well Conan was a Lucha Libre artist." Um so we're going to find out uh how Conan does with bringing his Lucha Libre art back <laughs> uh at at Final Battle. So uh, the, I guess to be continued.
0: The timing of me rewatching this couldn't be more perfect because um the tape machines uh, at tape machines, I think on Twitter who po- writes a lot about wrestling and does a lot of gifs, has been doing a 1996 WCW rewatch project. And he's been gifting a lot of 1996 WCW Conan back when he was not crazy Wolfpack Conan, but serious wrestler from Mexico Conan. And Oh my God is 1996 serious wrestler, serious wrestler Conan, the laziest wrestler you have ever seen taking the most disinterested looking bumps, almost yawning while he walks into position for bumps.
1: Oh, you're so mean.
0: I, I, so go look at this guy's account and watch, look at some of these gifts. He is if there was a wrestler that could take a nap while taking a German suplex it would have been 1996 Conan. Alright. But well, now that I'm done being mean. I will look. I will, look. And I will never be on keep it, uh, keeping it 100 now. Um, what did you
1: you think um, during the next uh, election cycle you could try to be on keeping it 1600 Um, (laughs) we'll see how it goes but anyway um, pod save the people Um, (laughs) um, okay so um, the way this match started first of all Meltzer's comment was right Otani got a huge pop it wasn't quite, like, Kobashi level, but I feel like it was at least as big as the pop that I heard Masawa get when I saw him at RO8. It's like, people really loved Otani being there. Um, I don't know if uh, if it felt that way to you, but they went it did. To
0: him. Um, especially when you consider Otani was not as big a star as Kobashi or Masawa or close. even Li- Liger and Moodle. Like, he was beloved by, like, us... Death Valley driver reading geeks and like tape traders, but he wasn't a star on the level of those other guys. And he gets a huge reaction.
1: And then a little few minutes later, they're like, Oh, we should probably chant for Tanaka too, or else we'll be meeting. <laughs> so, they, so they chant for Tanaka. And then, and then you see Otani being like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah do that, do that. Like he felt a little bad for his partner. Uh, it seemed like, um, early in the match, like it felt like it was just going to be kind of an exhibition, like just, you know, Otani and Tanaka didn't really take any bumps for a while. You know, they had some cool double team moves um Tanaka hit like a crot scoop power bomb. You know, they they pulled like they like did a thing where they like pulled Loki's legs apart, put him in the tree of woe. Um you know, different stuff like that. Carino didn't really uh do that much. Like he worked over Otani, he he worked the crowd then he would get out pretty quickly. Loki worked the bulk of the match. Um right? Um, and, you know, Otani eventually does his face wash kick that, and the crowd loved it. Even Gabe was like, this is like like our version of the People's Elbow. The crowd got <laughs> so into it. And soon Joe's version would get over pretty big too. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, they do the big boot in the corner on Carino and then miss the second one. Um, uh, Loki does like a dragon, a hanging dragon clutch on the ropes and and then Otani blocks the key crutcher so Key puts on the dragon clutch. So it's just a lot of like... Um, you know, low-key doing stuff. He does a capo kick that's really cool, and hits the title crush, which gets the crowd to chant for low-key. Then eventually the match keeps going, keeps going, and I think the last couple minutes were really good. Where Carino finally gets in the ring, uh, you know, he's, he's fighting with uh, Tanaka for a while and Otani. They have some, some kick-outs. Carino hits sort of like a, I guess almost like the snow plow. Um, for, a for a two count, the Otani hits a tornado, a tornado DDT, and then Tanaka hits one. Both of them do both of them on Karino. So it's like one after the other, mm-hmm. um, Karino comes back quickly with an exploder. Um, I just felt like the last minute was really good. Karino did a really good job there and, and they were the, 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 the Japanese guys were finally taking bumps. Um, and then eventually, um, the match ended, um, when, uh, when um, the uh, well I'm sorry, I lost my place in my notes for a second. Okay, so Otani moves on uh, moves on a springboard kick by Loki who hits Carino. So Loki hits Carino by mistake. Uh, then Otani hits a spring a springboard uh, spy, and spiral bomb almost on Carino for two, for the for the three count. And so the crowd really loved it. Uh, the crowd was really into it low-key looked really good and I thought the last couple of minutes with Karino were good so I'd put this in the in the solidly good and entertaining match range whereas I thought at the beginning it was just gonna be sort of like a, a pretty like quick exhibition uh, for the main uh, for the, for the Japanese guys but they eventually take some bumps and I thought it turned into a pretty good match that the crowd was into
0: I, I thought I would put my rating of it right where you put like a high like just good but you know satisfyingly good. I kind of would compare it to the Eddie Guerrero matches in Ring of Honor where he they're not mailing it in, but there there's an extra gear. Obviously, they're not going to put them they're not going to put it in and they're not going to go to the extra mile on certain bumps.
1: I thought it was better than the Eddie matches though. Like there's
0: just I think I, I think, I think it was too. I think it was a better match. I think their performances were probably around any level and I think it's easier when you have a tag match, you can kind of be a bit more frantic, you know, and still give like a B plus effort and the match will be a bit better because you're only one quarter of a match rather and also,
1: than Loki was in the match, which helps. Yeah.
0: A lot. Yeah. And it's interest it was really almost surreal to see Loki selling this much. You know, not that he hasn't sold in other matches, but he was been up to this point in Ring of Honor portrayed as the you know, he's the king, he's the ace of the promotion and the ultimate badass. And here he is taking, you know, a beating for a a significant part of this match. And he gets some offense in, but really he's there to make Otani and Tanaka look good. You know, they're, they're the centerpieces. They're the reason fans are interested in the match. And I felt like it moved at a good clip, this match, but it almost felt rushed, even though it was 15 minutes. Not in that they were putting too much into the match, but they were just kind of running around with their heads cut off almost. Uh, it, it almost felt like they were worried the fans would get bored. Yeah, because they, did,
1: they didn't really work any sort of like pathos into the match in any way. It was like they were they were just doing some moves.
0: Like, apart from maybe one submission, even when they put guys in submissions, they were broken up or they let go of them voluntarily, like, almost immediately every time. It was just like, all right, what's next? What's next? What's next? Like, it was – it felt just like they did not want to give this crowd any downtime. They wanted to keep going and going. And Might have been the right move. Yeah, it might have been. For for this late, that might have been a very smart read of the audience, you know, for a four-hour show. Like, let's just give them a fast-paced match. And the and crowd
1: was really into it, considering how long the show
0: was. Definitely. And Carino, as you said, he wasn't in the match much. And it was kind. Of, it was interesting because Gabe have kept talking about these last few shows how, you know, has reinvented himself as a serious wrestler in Japan. And he wants to show off his 0-1 style. But then you get him in a big match here, and he's almost an afterthought until the last couple minutes, where he's barely in it. He's not really doing that much or showing off what he can do that much, but then he does get those final minutes, as you said, where he gets to hit some big spots and take some big moves. And obviously he takes the finish of the match, but really a lot of this match is him standing on the apron while low keys in there. So kind of interesting for a guy that's being as featured as heavily as Steve. And he finally gets his chance against a couple of his big regular contemporaries in zero one. And He doesn't do a a lot for the whole bulk of the match, but good match. Um, I enjoyed it. It was, even though Akuto Hodaka and Dick Togo had uh, come to Ring of Honor earlier from Japan, I would consider this the first ever kind of big Japan free agent, you know, not free agent, but special event where it's something that Ring of would repeat a ton of times with everyone, from Dragon Gate guys to Mudo to Liger to Noah, other NOAA guys. To New Japan today. Yeah, and this was the first one of those where it was, we brought a guy that you probably have never seen in the U.S. before. He's the main event. He's not going to be here as a regular. It's a special treat. It draws extra fans. And, well, I don't think, you know, Otani and Tanaka gave as much as... Kobashi or the Dragon Gate guys would do later, I feel like they, they did set a good standard of they didn't mail it in either. This wasn't a vacation for them.
1: No, definitely not. This was this was so, they, they had a match, you know, they didn't have an amazing yeah. match, but they had a match.
0: So that's, I mean, do you have any other thoughts about the match? That's uh, about it for the match itself.
1: No, the crowd reacted at the end of it as though like they had just witnessed a classic, though, with the ROH chants and stuff. They really, really liked it, which I think is I think is a testament to the, how good the show was, uh, considering, you know, again, how late it was, how many of them probably had somewhere else to go because of the CZW show. So I think, I don't know, I think this was the, that show that this was a successful night, that you had a crowd chanting ROH at the end of it.
0: Yeah, and... You know, it's great that, again, I thought it was almost heartwarming, the reaction Otani got. And like you pointed out, I thought that was really cute where I, I had the same thought you did where it's almost like they realized we're tra- chanting a lot for Otani here. And then they give him a Tanaka a chant, you know, yeah. because obviously he's not the fresh new toy. He had been in ECW a few times. So to those Philly fans, it wasn't the first time they were saying Masato Tanaka. But I, I thought that that's a sign of that this was a successful match where they were super excited to see Otani and when they were done they obviously that crowd felt like that was that was what we enough of what we wanted like you have satisfied our excitement you have lived up to it and after the match we get one final backstage segment where the hit squad are talking backstage to Homicide, and Homicide sharpening a fork on the wall. I don't know if that's the best way to sharpen a fork. I don't know. but That's uh, all you got. Yeah. And he is still pissed about Steve Carino for turning on him, and he proceeds to go walk and find Steve Carino, who is in another room but with before, Simply so, Luscious.
1: Just to show how pissed he was, he's just like, oh, Carino, oh, God. oh Carino, and hitting himself in the forehead like, oh, Carino. <laughs> And then he just walks away, and the height squad's like, what is what is going on? We should probably follow him. <laughs> they literally but, say that, like, oh, we should probably follow him.
0: <laughs> and Homicide is, yeah, is one, do we know one of those moments where Homicide barely talks <laughs> in sentences, where it's just like, oh, I can't believe the Homicide, Steve Carino, oh, Band in Japan, like, and it uh, <laughs> <and> just <laughs> goes in there, and he finds Steve with Simply Luscious, proceeds to stab Steve right in the face with the fork. He just walks hit-
1: up to him, and he just, like, the no, no, you know, nothing going on. He just walks up to him, stabs him in the head. Just stabs him in the head. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the Hit Squad, who are Homicide's friends, and keep in mind at this point, Homicide has been portrayed as the face, because when Steve Carino turned on him in that Glory by Honor match, like, Gabe freaked out, like, Steve Carino's selfish. He only cares for himself. And here Homicide is stabbing a guy in the face because he turned on him in a relatively, like, meaningless match. The, it, it, and that was more miscommunication leading to anger than anything, which is really common in wrestling. Stabbing a guy in the face. A month and after his,
1: the incident in question,
0: by the yeah, way. Yeah. And his friends, the Hit Squad, are, like, not being like, yeah, you did the right thing, Homicide. They're like, what the hell did you do? Like, get out of here. Like, why'd you stab him? They mentioned, you know? they
1: mentioned like, your parole, man. Your parole.
0: Yeah, like, they are not happy that he stabbed Steve Carino in the face. So I, I
1: think in, in the nerdier version of indie wrestling in 2017, Homicide would not be the baby face for stabbing even obnoxious Steve Carino in the head while he's just sitting there talking to his simply luscious girlfriend.
0: <laughs> and that, that's how this show ends. So obviously the Homicide feud is continuing, and it was completely... In- character for homicide but for the face in a feud when Carino's going to be the heel in a bunch of feuds you know, it, it, it's another thing where it puts Steve in a sympathetic light like he's just, it's long after this relatively minor infraction has happened he doesn't seem to have any ongoing beef with homicide and homicide is still pissed, stabs him in the face with a fork <laughs> So
1: <laughs> I, I just imagine Steve Carino in the hospital bed being like uh, is is my girlfriend simply luscious alright? Saying <laughs> that to the doctors?
0: Uh, like, uh, besides that name, yeah, she's doing fine. <laughs> and, oh, my God. So, yes, that was All-Star Extravaganza, the very first one. Ending with and somebody
1: being stabbed in the face.
0: With a fork. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that you can make a strong case. This is the best show in Ring of Honor history, as people said at the time. At the time, uh, I mean, yes. at, at 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 to this point, not yeah. not in not in 2017, but to this point, yeah. And obviously, in terms of business, it was um, its big biggest success ever by a minor amount. You know, it did an extra 25 fifty than they had ever done before, even though it was an afternoon show. But what I'll say is, we you and I we always talk about in these early shows, not always, but a lot of the time. When is Ring of Honor going to flip the switch and become more like the Ring of Honor we kind of remember of 2004 to 2006, the prime era? And what I've realized is it's never going to happen all at once. It happens in bits and pieces. It happens in two steps forward, one step back. We were kind of anticipating Unscripted would be the show where it would change, but that it only had some parts of that. But this would be a show where I felt like it did kind of feel – and I'm sure there will be one step back to these two steps forward – But it did feel different. It did feel more like the Ring of Honor I got into when I started watching regularly in 2004. There was less of the little video segments like you mentioned before. There was less of the comedy and wackiness. There was just – they had reached a critical mass where there was a ton of interesting names up and down the card. More of the matches just had a purpose. And it was just a, a, a better product in terms of being consistent up and down.
1: Right. You know, last month I talked about is ROH an actual good wrestling promotion at this point? And I would say mm, there hadn't been really any other shows that maybe wrote for the title that felt like just like this is just a good promotion, a good show overall. You know, every show had a great match which almost every show did, which I think, you know, is a big testament. You know, very few promotions can say that. So that's good. But this is the first show where it's like, okay, this is a good wrestling promotion. There's a lot of good stuff going on. You know, a bunch of good matches, um, a lot of good wrestlers doing good stuff. This is the first show where it felt that way. Like, you said, yes, it's gradual, like when they become the ROH that, you know, got such a great reputation over the years. But this show is the biggest single show step toward it that I can think of.
0: Yeah. And it's the first time of this rewatch where I haven't just wanted to watch the next show because I have fun doing this podcast or because there's one or two matches or moments. I remember it's just, even though scramble madness is not rec- remembered, like in general, people don't really talk about it. It's not, it doesn't have this incredible reputation. Just, After the show, I was left excited for the next show in general and not for one match. I was just like, I want to see more Ring of Honor. I want to see more late 2002 Ring of Honor. And that's as good as you can do for for any wrestling promotion. And it's the first time I think I can recommend a whole show not for one match, not telling you to go to YouTube and, and watch the good match, not for, oh, it's good for historical significance if you're into that just to say no it's a good wrestling show you should if you can find it on ebay go ahead and buy it you know
1: agreed i, I, I don't this I don't. A, ha- this is a solid show and a really good look like if you want one show from 2002 to really encompass what's good about 2002 roh this would be the one i would say
0: yeah I, and i don't have to give it any qualifiers like if it's on ebay for 10 15 bucks and it sounds like our has made it sound interesting go buy it, it it's it's a good show you know? And I, I disappointingly have not been able to say that about a ton of two thousand two Ring of Honor. So good show. I enjoyed it. And next time, Matt, do you have any other thoughts? Actually I should ask first about All Star Extravaganza.
1: I don't, but I do have one more thing I want to talk about before we hang up. Okay. Which is um so it was my birthday a few weeks ago and A uh, a good friend of mine and friend of the show named Albert Ching. Uh, He's the uh, managing editor of CBR.com. He's been on List Um, and Learn. He decided to send me some wonderful ROH themed birthday presents. And I promised him that I would talk about them on the show because they are wonderful gifts. So... Uh, and if anyone else wants to send me ROH-themed gifts over the years, <laughs> I will not give you my address, so you can't. Um Aww. But thank you for thinking of me. Um, so first of all, he got me a something I've always, always wanted as somebody who doesn't play with action figures. is something that's amazing that it even exists, but it's a Kyle O'Reilly Ring of Honor action figure. <laughs> which, I, I mean... You guys can send suggestions about what I can do with this because uh, <laughs> as far as I, I'll leave it in, in the package as it you know, appreciates in value to where it one day <laughs> might be worth $4. Um, he also got me – and I, this was a gag gift, but little does he know that there's a lot of actually great stuff on it. A decade in the making, B.J. Whitmer versus Jimmy Jacobs, which has a lot of their great matches, including the match where Jacobs gets the concussion and keeps coming to Dragon Gate Challenge, the amazing steel cage match they have at Supercard of Honor, too. Uh, So that's a legit gift that I will actually use. And the best gift of all, um, which I will be walking around with so everybody uh, thinks I'm a weirdo, the Ring of Honor branded Fidget Spinner. (laughs) Man, I've already opened it. I've already played with it. It's good stuff. So uh, thank you, Albert. Um, and uh, I, uh, I look forward to uh, all of the ROH gifts that you guys would give me if you could. Um, so you could always uh, – you could um, – in fact, if you want to tweet me and tell me what ROH gifts you would get me, if you had my address, you can uh, tweet that at hashtag um, hypotheticalgifts. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> to uh, to me. Um, and I, I would love to know what you would get me. <laughs>
0: okay. Um, uh, <laughs> I just, um, I also want to thank Albert for uh, making that hashtag possible. Uh, Albert's a great guy. If you're interested in comic books, cbr.com is a great site for comic book news and reviews. One day Albert we'll have him
1: on this show when he's willing to watch yes. a full ROH DVD.
0: Albert does a great job at that site. And also, in cat- fact-
1: catch him this week On Straight Shoot.
0: Um, I was about to say, yeah, with Aubrey Sidderson's podcast where they're going to talk about wrestling.
1: They're going to talk about the G1 this week, and Albert is going to be on it, so check that out.
0: And, uh, yeah, I think he's been on a few times because Albert is also a regular goer to PWG shows since he lives in California. So he has a lot of thoughts to give about them, and he's very funny and charming. A good word for Albert Ching is charming. Go back and listen to your "Listen to them and Learns" and listen to Albert. Charming is the first word that comes up to me with handsome, Albert. Chan. Handsome is another one. Great body. Um, no, he's no Orrin Hatch, but he yeah, is. He's good looking.
1: He's simple. He's simply luscious. If you know, when I really <laughs> think about
0: it. But. Finally, um, our next show will be Scrambled Madness, the f- second show ever Ring of Honor does outside of Philly, the second show they do in Wakefield, Massachusetts. We'll have um, AJ Styles versus Christopher Daniels for the number one contenders trophy. We'll have Mark Briscoe's second match in Ring of Honor, Homicide in Samoa Joe having their first of maybe 772 matches they had in the company, and, of course, Ryan Danielson versus Doug Williams in a 30 minute ironman match. And we may or may not have a guest on. We're still I always hate to promise things on paper we do but um until we work out the schedules I hate to promise things but it should be a fun show no matter what. And thank you all for listening. Sorry if there was a little bit of audio technical problems at the beginning of the show. I will work on it to be better next time. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Matt, for doing the show with me, as always. And until next time.